Welcome to the Beach and Black Podcast, an award-winning, unofficial podcast on Prince. For over 10 years, giving you Prince news, reviews, trivia, and all things happening in the Prince world. Featuring the host, Rob S. I think the craziest thing that's happened is when Prince invited me and Captain to meet with him in New York in 2010. Captain. Anytime Prince gets on the guitar and he starts getting up near that top fret, just get ready to blow your head off. Player. Oh my god, that's the Minneapolis sound right there. Toe Jam. There's just layers and layers of stuff going on in his music all the time in every speaker. Find Peach and Black on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Hi, this is Eden Nelson. This is Tony Young. Hi, this is Larry Graham. This is Mr. Hayes. And you're listening to... And you're listening to... And you're listening to... And you're listening to... The Peach and Black Podcast. The Peach and Black Podcast. The Peach and Black Podcast. The Peach and Black Podcast, baby. Now over to our host, Rob S. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Peach and Black podcast. We are gathered here today to talk with Scotty Baldwin, front of house sound engineer for not only Prince, but many other artists like Lady Gaga, Madonna, Scissor Sisters, Duran Duran, Stevie Wonder, and the list goes on and on. Scotty started out as Michael B's drum tech in 1990, and he worked with Prince on and off during subsequent years, including doing the One Night Alone, Musicology, and Piano and Microphone concert tours. But before we bring Scotty in into this episode, let's introduce the Peach and Black podcast panel from left to right, player. Turn me up, Scotty. Captain. Oh, what he said. Turn him up. I thought you were going to say, um, Scotty, shake something. I thought that was the most... Oh, there you go. There's there's another Uh, one. And uh, it is me, Rob S., in the place to be in front of this microphone. So unfortunately, our normal Peach and Black podcast panel member, ToeJam, a.k.a. Scott, couldn't be here today. He tried everything he could to make it. And we didn't want to do a Frankenstein, so um, (laughs) he's not here. We have Uh, to uh, send our apologies. We've had to replace... One Scott with another, Scotty Baldwin, substitute. Who, <laughs> who doesn't necessarily play, he doesn't necessarily play the trumpet, but he's mixed trumpets left, right, and center, and not only trumpets, but about every other instrument and voice and sound effect you could think of. We're thrilled to have Scotty on the show. Welcome to the Peach and Black podcast, Scotty. Great to great to be here. I'm happy to be here with you guys. Yay. Awesome. Well, we're, we're super excited to have you on and are raring to go with... Uh, questions and curiosities and all sorts of good stuff. So um, I guess let's get straight into it. Captain, why don't you lead us off with our Ooh, okay. famous peach and black questions. Those <laughs> are famous questions. Okay, Scotty, welcome. Thank you for coming. Thank you. So first off, just for our own ego, tell us, how did you first hear about the peach and black podcast? After I left Australia, I left New Zealand, actually, I was in discussion with management back and forth because I left on my own. And uh, I got the cryptic way that Prince would have conversations was he would, through management, would send me, he sent me a link that said, he wants you to listen to this, please listen to this. And so it was a link to your podcast. I clicked, I clicked on it and listened to the reviews of the uh, Piano and a Microphone show, Australia. I think it was, it was one episode. Is that correct? Or did you do more yeah. than that? Uh, it was just that yeah. overall thing of that tour, yeah. I listened to the, to the, I believe it was a few hours long. I listened to the whole thing. And the, the only thing in there about sound that I heard 
was that it sounded good. The thing sounded good. He sounded clean and close and, you know, there were no issues. And, and, uh, I think that's mainly what Prince wanted me to gather from that, but you never know. So, um, mm. I didn't really have a response because we were sort of arguing at the time. And mm. so, because I'd left him. And so I took that though, I, I mean, that's, that's what put you on the map in my, in my eyes and ears. And then I listened to subsequent, uh, I always kept it in my player and then I, I would listen to different episodes you have. I appreciate you guys. I appreciate you guys without ever having met you. And uh, I want to tell you how much I enjoyed that. Once I got that email, it's important to, I think you guys were important because clearly he sat and listened to the three hour, you know, listen to that podcast. And it can, it can be exciting to know that Prince listened to your podcast. You know, that's why I thought it was important that you get a copy oh, of the yeah. email. Absolutely. Exciting was an understatement. We can yes. share that much with you. <laughs> yes. And did you know that before I sent you that? We knew well, he listened way back, like in the first, second year, but we didn't know exactly how long he kept listening. And then you sent us that from like right near the end. So he listened to us pretty much the entire time. That's through, yeah. that's the thing that blew our mind really. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We, we kind of had this, um, an indication from him that he had heard a few shows, but it's very different. And you get that sort of email and you, and you look at the it's just there in black and white and it confirms everything mm. that you you thought was true so it's uh, right. it's pretty cool it's, it's definitely really special for us so um thank you for sending that yeah that's it's my pleasure you guys have great takes Ooh. on things and your your sensibilities are clean and connected to i think a core of the way he thought and operated so i've always appreciated your Ooh, podcast that's good to know. Nice. i always thought it's good to have you know at least three or four people so you've got you know, sometimes we totally disagree on things. That's not like we're all just saying, you know, this song is the best song. At least half the time we're disagreeing on many things. So I think it's good to have a bunch of different views on things. Well, that's the beauty of art as well, is that when you stand in front of something or listen to it, everyone has a different response and the mm. impact is different. It's not not unlike food and you know anything else, anything in an artistic endeavor. Everyone has a different take. And that's the beauty. Part of the beauty of art is that it gives us time away from the actual art to discuss with people and talk about the different elements that we like. There are very few things that give us that like art. Yeah. Like when you mentioned that you got that email, I actually listened to the whole show yesterday, that piano microphone tour review show. And I was trying to think, why was Prince sending that to you to listen to? And then, like you said, I listened through the two hours and 15 minutes or whatever it is, and not that much about the sound. I mean, we talked about it here and there, but it wasn't like a big issue anywhere. So I was still trying to figure out what did he want you to hear? And I it guess did. that's what it was. It was... It it wasn't about the sound. I thought it would be, but, um, or I thought that there, that you guys would say there was some issue or that it didn't sound good or that there was something mm. that Prince was directing me towards saying, see, but it, it, it was nothing but your review was, was nothing but glowing about all the shows and how personal they were and how, you know, exactly what went on. And mm. I think it was his, it was his way of, of telling me that things were good and that I left, uh, that I shouldn't have left. That was what yeah. I took out of it. I always trust my gut. I have a great gut anyway, but I, I always trust my, my gut instinct as to um, why something is the way it is. And that was when I finished that, when the podcast finished, I went, okay, well that he just meant to say, see, it was great. And you mm. left, you left this great thing. Mm. Mm. Now looking back on all that, how, how do you feel about it all? Um, I don't regret leaving. I wasn't having a good time there. Um, mm. I said it in that many words to Prince. He, he was, um, I can take a lot, you know, um, engineers, especially monitor engineers, but, and in this instance, I was both, I was front of house and I was monitors and I can take a lot. I can go through a lot. I've been through a lot in my career and 
and um, I'm tough. I can hang in there. I didn't, I'm older now and I didn't feel like being there. And I had another project that I'd left to come and do that. And I just felt like it was time for the sake of the show, not less so for me. The number one thing is I wanted, he had to be comfortable and he had to know that um, he's always known before that behind his back in the corner or out in front of house that I was always, if he knew I was there, everything was going to be fine. And um, we had countless number of discussions on that. And he, something was clearly off. I, I didn't know what it was. And I've said this before, if I knew I would have been able to reference that. I've been down that road before and I've been able to put a hand mm-hmm. on a shoulder with different artists and say, hey, I think we have something else going on here. And um, sometimes to my detriment, to the detriment of my employee, you know, is, mm-hmm. is to say, hey, I think there's something more going on here. So I'm, I'm comfortable with doing that. But I felt that whatever was going on was not, and I didn't, again, I didn't know what was going on, but whatever was going on was not, would be aided in me not being there. And it's easy to do that when you have a nice fat job on the other end that I left and could come right mm. back to. And so, and it, and it happened before. It wasn't the first time that I left Prince. A lot of people want to look back and talk about all the great things. I have no problem talking about the good and the bad because I think in all, in everyone's experience, it's almost like saying that because Prince is gone, you don't want to say any of his songs were terrible. Like no one would do that. If here's a bad song, you just say, well, that clearly was a filler or that was bad. Uh, so so there, why there's still a few terrible songs. <laughs> so no, no. That, and that's what I'm saying. I like when people call it what it is, yeah. right? No matter yeah. who and what it might hurt. I like when people are honest and I'm very honest. And I'm, um, I always keep Prince's not for anyone else, but for me, I keep the reverential aspect of how I talk about Prince. He was a huge part of my foundation and what I was to other artists, Prince helped build that. He helped sort of in the lab. He sort of, in a way, I'm being a little dramatic, but he sort of made me. He taught me how to think. In those years, I was Michael Bland's drum tech. And he would talk to me. He put me out at front of house on headset with the people mixing and telling them when the solos were. And he relied on me to, because he knew I knew the music as well as anyone. And he would call Mm -hmm. me a, a, a band member. And he wanted to, at one point he wanted to, it was 2000. Uh, four, he wanted to give me a pad out at front, an SPD, uh, a drum pad out front to hit certain sounds. And I thought, and I said, no, and I played it off on being the delay. You know, there's a delay between when things happen and when they happen out of front of house. So I said, no, there's too much of a delay. I'm not going to, cause I thought, no way, I'm not going to actually become i I'm in the dark out there. That's my place. But he mm-hmm. was very, um, he was very supportive in all of the people that he trusted to be an active willing participant in the creation of his art. And he gave credit for that. Sometimes he gave credit by talking to you or talking, excuse me, talking about you to other people. Sometimes he would say, yeah, okay, I'll do the cover of Modern Drummer standing with you, Mm. right? Or more Mm. bass player magazine. And sometimes he would, he would put people into his art when he says doctor during the solo in uh, Babe I'm a star, he's talking about Dr. Fink. And when he says, when he says, when they say, Wendy, yes, Lisa. And when he says Bobby on the drums, all of that, becomes part you become part of his art and every time he said turn it up scotty that became part of his art and, and or, or even a thank you as in the piano show when he thanked mm-hmm. me during the piano show that was totally unexpected and super appreciated but it, it's when people were important enough to him he inserted them into his art that's a huge deal and yeah. so therefore getting back to my point is i will always talk about him even critically i will talk about him in a reverential way because he was a huge part of constitutionally of who I am as an artist, as a sound engineer artist and what I provide to other artists. Now that was help. I had all that help from him. And so I, I will always be uh, honored 
that that uh, memory and, and even if it means always telling the truth yeah. because i think there are lessons in there and there is comfort in knowing that it's not all just rainbows and purple skies it's that's mm. part of the the artistic endeavor is tension musical tension and there's tension in relationships and things half the shows or half the songs written in the world are based on tension ask taylor mm-hmm. swift right yeah. so <laughs> so tension yeah. is a good thing and it can be part of an artistic response in people's lives so um i'm, I'm quite happy to come on with you and um speak of course respectfully and reverentially and be a good uh steward of his memory because he provided me with so much and, and i could never repay him for that it's really nice and and so before you got on board with prince just for a background for our listeners pre-prince how, how did you get started in the industry and before that point before going to paisley park it was um it was sort of a meteoric entry into the industry i was i happened to be taking guitar lessons i, I was going to be a guitar player that's I was, it was probably a normal part of any kid's uh, upbringing. Yeah. Yeah, upbringing. And for me, it would have come and gone, but it, um, I caught on with, I got the attention of Michael Bland and he, he saw my level of attention to detail in the way I was setting up drums for someone else. And he said, Hey, I'd like you to start coming out with me to Paisley park. And uh, we're not on a tour, but Prince just rehearses year round. And he's got this band for um, a local singer in Minneapolis. And, um, I'd like you to come out and do rehearsals. That's how I met Sheila E and Sheila and I became friends really away from the, the Prince camp. I mean, we just became friends and I would occasionally set up drums for her, but it was uh, more of a friendly relationship. And then, and then uh, Michael, of course, for four years, I was, went on tours with Prince and still worked at bars with Michael when he would come home. Michael's such a, a gifted player and individual. And he's so musical that he, he was always wanted to be engaged. He was very much like Prince. You know, I've never actually even said that, but Michael was sort of cut from the same cloth as Prince where he's always thinking about music. It's his first priority. You can always see that in his mind. Same with Prince. And uh, so I, I toured with Michael. It's a, a long tale with a lot of stories, but it's, it's uh, I don't need to bore people with that. It's that we had, I learned a lot. It was a really it was a learning four years. It was actually five years. So from 90 to 94, being on tour and listening to Prince fire these sound guys or listening mm. to how he spoke with lighting engineers and how he talked about what color songs we should be. I mean, things like that. Yeah. Um, some people get it. Guys like uh, Roy Bennett understand that. And Roy, who, if you don't know, lit Purple Rain and he lit the Purple Rain tour and he's gone on yeah. to huge success. I mean, Roy, pound for pound, Roy Bennett is the most successful person that ever worked with Prince. I was actually reading about Roy not that long ago, and I think he started way back like Controversy or Dirty Mind Tour. He was there like yeah. from really early until, yes. I can't remember now, but yeah, the he was there a long audience, time. Yeah. And Roy is somebody who just, he understands, he has the sensibility and the artistic sensibility to understand what something, what potential something has. So when Roy, I don't know, I haven't had many discussions with Roy, but when he, I'm imagining that when he hears a song, he's already got that in mind. And his, his vision of something, both from a production and a lighting standpoint, and probably even sound, you know, just layered right alongside with Prince. And that's why they were really mm-hmm. a powerful. There was no show. There's no show like a Roy Bennett show. And people who don't know that Roy is a production and lighting designer, and he works for all the biggest names in the industry, and including the the artists with whom I'm working now and have been for a, a, almost two years, Wang Li Hong. I do all my work in China over there. But Roy was the designer and lighting designer of that show. And he just continues to do all the biggest and best things. And that's where you, that's how you get when you're successful with Prince, 
you can do anything. You know, there's nothing that's out of reach. Mm-hmm. And, the, and Prince helped build that in a, in a lot of people, musicians in, as well. Yeah, last year I was... Um... I had the opportunity to sit with um, Steve Schwind on the um, Pink tour. He does the lighting for Pink and Janet Jackson and stuff. Yes. And you just, yeah, you just appreciate like the level of what they do in their environment and what they, you know, making the artists, you know, look good with their lighting. So yes. it's so cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's all a punctuation. Lighting is such a, when it's right, it's when everything yeah. comes, when everything comes together, there's just nothing like it. Because when you play an MP3, or when you stream something and hear a great new song, all the lighting and visual gods are going, ah, because they're on break, right? But when, <laughs> but when you add the element of the physical proximal effect of people yeah. in the room, and then you also add, so you have depth and you have curve and you have color and you have dimension and you're doing it all with lights. And then you're punctuated by knowing the music that well, that every little thing and every little thing that Prince fans know, little bass pull, like there's a bass pull in the beginning of DMSR that I've had to go to different bass players for Prince over the years. I said, hey, don't forget that. (laughs) You know, don't forget that little thing because every Prince fan knows it. And then they listen and they go, oh, cool. Thanks, Scotty. Yeah, right? Because they learn the heart. They learn the song, but they don't learn that part, that little thing. And some things you want to be organic and other things you really need to be intentional, especially in legacy material. People have to be on the nose. They have to be on the money. So knowing the music is a huge, it's a, it's the biggest benefit for everyone. And Prince sort of demanded that all the technicians know the music and really f- imbibe the spirit of the show. And he didn't keep people who weren't into it or were thinking about the next gig or were thinking the fact that they were going to go on tour with Fleetwood Mac in three months. They quickly recuse themselves from, from that position just by disinterest. Yeah. They can't phone it in. Yeah. Yeah. And so can you recall the first time you met Prince in the sense that you interacted with him and how that uh, all went down? I believe it was, um, I had seen him at the fine line and I was going to, which is a club in Minneapolis that Prince would show up uh, at, at which Prince would, would show up and watch, uh, Dr. Mambo's combo, the band. And I was accidentally going to, I was going to go up a stairway and it was closed and I didn't know it was closed. And I kind of came around the corner and Prince and Gilbert and one other uh, so his bodyguard, Gilbert Davison, and one other bodyguard all kind of turned around and looked at me and I froze like a deer in headlights <laughs> and then sort of backtracked like the little kid in the movie The Shining. I kind of went backwards in my footprints, you know, down the, <laughs> down the stairs. That's the first time I laid eyes on him. And it's special. Everyone remembers the first time they see him. But mm-hmm. um, I can't remember specifically, oddly enough, the first time we spoke. I think it was behind Michael's drum kit. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure it was where he was asking about where he mentioned something about how hard Michael hit. Because he and mm. Prince and Sheila were out front of this band that was rehearsing in the soundstage at Paisley Park. And I was, of course, always behind Michael because things would break all the time. Michael was, <laughs> he was, he's big and he would break things. And I would have to really know how to get in there quickly and fix them. And so I was always literally Michael's right-hand man. I was right there to his right behind him. And uh, I remember Michael hit a, he hit the ride cymbal once hard and a, about a six inch tip of the drum, a big piece of drumstick went flying way out over the lead singer and landed right in between Prince and Sheila. They were sitting on director's chairs and they both looked down at that and then up at each other and went, damn. And, and that's, that's the, and I think it was that day when Prince came back and talked about how, you know, that Michael would break stuff. And I said, oh yeah, yes, sir. I, you know, I, I have to fix it quickly and I have to, we have a plan for how to fix everything. And so contingencies, I believe you can ask Michael, but I believe Prince that what I remember is Michael said, Hey man, you know, he, he asked me about you and I told him you were cool. And so he said, you should probably ask him if he can go on tour with us. So that was kind of my first interaction. 
And then it was on almost a daily basis. Sometimes we tried not to, you know, there were times that all of us would sort of hide from him. Yeah. The mood. <laughs> and, yeah. We um, heard that from, um, from, um, Morris Hayes is like, you never yeah. know which, which prince is going to turn up today. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And Morris and, and I were close back then. He's, uh, we've lost touch, but we, we have a lot of respect for one another. And Morris, um, and I have to say this about Morris. He always, when Prince would go diff- through different sound engineers and would ha- be having trouble, Prince would either go to Kirk or Morris and just say, hey, I'm having trouble with this. Or I have trouble. And both Kirk and Morris, I have to give him a lot of props because they give them their propers because they both would say, hey, man, you got to call Scotty. You already had the guy, uh, you know, you get, call yeah. Scotty. And so it was it was because of Kirk and Morris that I would get hmm. called back. You know, they would put me back to the forefront of his mind and then uh, inevitably I'd end up back there, you know, all the time. But yeah, Morris, Morris knew probably better than anyone because Morris spent, you know, hundreds. I mean, you know, we might be talking about thousands of hours at that keyboard position when everyone else in that band would leave. Morris was the sort of the de facto MD. I mean, Levi was for a time sort of acting MD, but Morris was the one, you know, you look to a multi-tonal player, like a keyboard player, someone that, that can say, no, A minor, A minor nine, go to G and then there's a sus and adds, add, add, you know, 13. And like, they're the ones that everyone looks to for chords typically. And Morris getting all those sounds right and getting everything in to get together for tours. Morris spent more time. Anytime I would come in, he would already be there. And when I would leave, mm-hmm. he would still be there. And I'd say, Hey, you want me to stay? And he said, no, it's cool, man. Cool, man. <laughs> go ahead, Scotty. And then I would just <laughs> yeah. take off and he would still be there programming. So Morris, I'm sure had a lot of FaceTime a lot more FaceTime with Prince yeah. than, than just about anyone. And so what happens during that time is you begin to hear all of Prince's theories, however, uh, however fantastical they could be <laughs> at some times. And some were disposable, you know, and you could tell it was the fashion of the day and some were really had a lot of gravity to them. And a lot of them, I've never written them down, but I, there are a lot of those little sayings that Prince would say, I would grab and I would hold on to, and they, they become foundational in, how I approach what I do. So Prince is that guy who Morris would agree that made you better at what you did just by being around him was enough. And even though he had failings in the way he dealt with, uh, you know, certain relationships in his life and career choices and mm. just different, you know, we all have failings in life. It's just that when you're on a scale like that, everything's magnified. It's just like literally like sliding a magnifying glass in front of your life. And so people hear about it, but you got to say this about Prince. He went 57 years, never had a major scandal, never got caught doing anything. He shouldn't have. He just, he was always engaged in music. He was completely made. He didn't have time. He didn't have time to do anything else. (laughs) He was always doing music. And I think, I believe unless, unless I'm incorrect, I believe his most prodigious recording period was from 2003, you know, for the next four or five, six years at Paisley Park until he went out to LA. He mm. recorded more in that time than any, because he had uh, Dave Hampton there. He was, they were always in a state of go. They were ready. So when he come, he would, everything would be laid out. There'd be no broken console. There'd be no lack of tape. There would uh, be no, uh, there issues, would be really. a, a missing person that to staff uh, fixing things and issues and mic drum kits and things like that. They were always in a state of preparedness, like a fire, you know, like a firefighting station mm-hmm. where you have the it's men and women that fight a fight a fire. They're always ready. They sleep there. You know, they're ready. Yeah. It's really interesting to hear that because that's probably not a period that most Prince fans would uh, assume yes. was yeah. particularly prodigious or, um, you know, full of activity. You know, well, see, that's the think, difference think between of, how much he recorded and how much he released. Yeah, mm, that's the I, difference I there. I agree. And he had his cycle. And I mean, if you look at, 
if you look at his sales, I'm sure clearly the imperial, what I've heard has been called the imperial era, which is basically the revolution, uh, maybe 1999 on through, I don't know, Diamonds of Pearl, maybe Batman or, you know, somewhere, mm. somewhere around early nineties. I don't know what his imperial era covers or if it's even called that, but the big hits, things tapered off and then went kind of steadily down for many years. This happens to other artists. The way Prince got over was in the live game because he could just snap his fingers and put together an incredible live show that everyone wanted to see and hear. Yeah. And that's what keeps you in front of people. And that's, I know that's what he, based on our discussions, that's what I know to believe to be true, that that's where you earn your keep is in playing live. Hmm. And uh, that's what set him apart was, was his live shows as it was a live artist. So, and of course it doesn't hurt me that being his probably, I don't know, it's between Rob and I, but it's not a competition, but Rob, Rob Cubby, uh, Colby mixed him for many years and I mixed him for many years and, and covered a, a long period of time. And, and, uh, between Rob and I, you got pretty much, you know, most of his career covered and, um, to be a successful live uh, sound engineer with Prince is the top of the, <laughs> the, you know, that that's it. That's, that's the top thing. And, and I got my, what would be considered the a, a kind of the Grammy of live sound. I got that on a Prince tour. So that just shows that he, he made everybody better around him. He always made you better. I mean, I, I don't know many people who were around him and we complained. A lot of us complained along the way because there were things about which to complain because a lot of our time was taken and um, things would happen in our lives that were out of our control because we were at the beck and call of someone. But you always, I always got a sense that I was part of something bigger that was going on. I didn't always realize it at the time as evidenced by some of the stuff in the piano era, the last era, which we'll cover, but, uh, you always kind of knew, I, I, I knew I was part of something really special all the time. Do you think just on that point of, you know, the dedication and the toll that it takes on, on people that are working around him and possibly the toll that it even took on him, I'm imagining over so many years, constantly rehearsing, writing, recording, et cetera. Do you think he was, aware, conscious of the impact that his work and his art had on the people around him? Or was it more a case of he's like the, you know, he's got that narrow path that he's constantly going down. It's about what, what are we going to do today to make the show better than any other show out there? Or or how are we going to mix this song or record this song so that I get exactly what I want? Because I'm imagining it's it would be a really difficult balance to play between being true to your spirit and creating something that is so intense and personal to you, and then also having to worry about potentially hundreds of people around Baisley Park or wherever you. Well, first of all, that is one of the best questions I've ever been asked. So that that is an important, uh, not just because it involves me, but that's a really deep question. What you're Ooh. saying is, is the cost of an artist's art worth it? if it affects the supporting members of that artist's life in a negative way. Mm-hmm. And that's the question that you could ask any artist. I could unplug your question and plug it into any different facet of life. And that would be, a, I, that, that's a deep question. And I would <laughs> say the, the answer with Prince would be yes and no. I'll explain. He was aware of how it affected people. And ultimately, I mean, I remember on multiple occasions and one musician in particular who I won't name that he said, well, they didn't want to be here and, and because they couldn't handle it. And so he knew, he, he knew how it affected people, but ultimately he knew people were responsible enough to make their own decisions as to what they were willing to give and give up to be a part of something that was special. It wasn't always special, but when he's gone, it's all special. So what I've left when I left in, in, uh, Auckland, New Zealand, again, I know we're going to cover that, but what I've left probably, yeah, 
even having the foresight of, of, uh, you know, several weeks knowledge of what was going to happen several weeks later, or a, a month or two later, I, I still would have left. It was time and everything has its arc of time and people, you can't go back and change things. And we have to look at, I don't think everything personally, if you're putting the question to me personally, I don't think everything happens for a reason. I don't think there's a reason for everything that goes on, but I think we can find reasons for why everything happens and we can mm. find reasons. We can mine that those experiences and find out why they are. And Prince is an artist who taught us a lot about ourselves. He's not just this sexy crooner and he was came along at the right time and had great funk music and great rock and great pop and kind of a country sounding tour too. You know, he, he wasn't just a multi-generational artist. He was an important artist because he helped people understand themselves and what they are. Those only come around. They're really, really rare. Mm. They're rare. They let you know who you are. That's why you have the dedication in Prince fans that you have. Uh, same way Elvis has fans. Um, mm. The same way James Dean has fans. I think the guy did two movies, right? <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, it's very few. <laughs> but good artists help you understand yourself. And getting back to the original question, they will help you find your limit for how you will support them. As someone who takes them in as a, a listener or as someone who supports them by going to their shows and buying their shirts or someone who supports their art in the middle at 2 a.m. gets a call and has to go in and mic a drum kit mm -mm. Um, mm -hmm. so he can record. But we all chose that path and, and we have that narrative arc in our own life and our day, when our day is up, it's up. We didn't, I never say, oh, we lost her too soon or we lost him too soon or I, I never, I don't say those things. I think we, everything plays out how it's supposed to play out. And then what do you learn from that? How do you move forward? I feel like I'm repeating myself, but the most interesting story is never it's rarely just who won the game or won that thing. It's the story of the loss that came along with that mm. and how, and how people respond from a loss. And yeah. um, there were a lot of good people in Prince's career that helped him get to where he got. And there were people who tried to help him get to where he never got. Mm. How about that? How about that? Yeah, that's because, uh, I, because I always, I don't live with regret and I don't really believe in it. I think it's a detrimental, it's a, it's rust. You know, it's mm -hmm. rust. But if I were to regret anything, I, I think that there were a lot of things that Prince could have done that would have not just made him more popular, but ultimately made his artistic experience deeper and richer and thereby, there, therefore enriching the experience of all of us and making the reason that you start a podcast. Uh, if you talked about things that Prince, that fans think Prince should have done at any point in career, that will that's a conversation that will never yeah. end. <laughs> yeah. 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 And the other thing, just to quickly cap off on that, I guess all the points that you just made is the other thing I'm, I'm imagining is if someone is working for him and you kind of alluded to this, no one's forcing you to be there. So if you can't take the heat or you've got other priorities and you make, you know, a personal decision, whether it's family or, or health or, or whatever it might be, you're free to do that, right? I mean, he's not, I'm imagining that no one would, would just hold people captive in a recording studio. It's a question of, is this the right time? Can you do this? Can you, you know, face the, the challenges that will be put in front of you? And if you can, and he wants you there, great. Otherwise you're, you're, you're free to go. So it's he not, didn't, he didn't, I don't think, I think it's a period. It's, that's a question to me of fortification. Are you fortified enough to do this? And if you weren't, I don't think it was necessarily to your detriment. I think it was, sometimes I think it was Prince's loss and he, you know, he could have handled things in a different way that would lead that to be, have a better outcome than it would have been had, you know what I'm saying? So people have to, they have their limit. And I believe Prince 
believed in being an individual and he was definitely a nonconformist, which is what I wrote about in that uh, One Night Alone Live uh, liner notes that he asked me to write. I mean, he asked me to write, you know, he asked, I was asked to write by Lynn, his assistant, something about the experience of that. When I knew that that was going to be released as a stereo recording, no multi-track stuff, no, very few overdubs. And it was really interstitial overdubs between song to song um, back at Paisley Park, but all the mixes were live. And so when I, what I wrote about was the fact that he was a defiant nonconformist and he, I believe he was gravitated to people who were nonconformists at heart. And Mm. um, he was a champion of people who otherwise wouldn't get, wouldn't get a chance as evidenced by his unearthing his finding out what charities to Mm. which he gave and uh, working with young artists who he believed should be in popular culture and weren't right. So he, he was very good at understanding potential in people. And I'm not saying he always knew there were several people who were in the, the hot seat, the, the right hand uh, mm-hmm. seat yep. to him that would say, <laughs> man, I had to remind him it was Christmas. Like I, I, no, we can't do that. That's Christmas day or no, that's, you know, that's this holiday. We can't. And he'd say, oh, okay. I, he, he just wouldn't know. So there were sometimes he was like, these people have families. Everyone has to, they're all going home. That's Thanksgiving. Yeah. You know, and he would, he would reply, well, you think that turkeys are thankful, you know, so <laughs> you, you usually get, yeah, that sounds like of, something he'd say, <laughs> you'd, you'd have a, a, there'd be a side, there'd be a side note of sarcasm. So sometimes he had to be reminded that people had lives and other times he knew that people were there and they were accepting a paycheck. And that was the commodity that, or that was the, um, yeah, that was the collateral for your, for your, for your time. And we all knew yeah. why we were there. And, and those of us that were smart understood that we were there learning more than what it is we were there to do. So when I was a drum tech, I was learning how to be a sound engineer. So when I went into engineering, I had a meteoric rise. I started Mm. with Sheila and went right from Sheila to Seal. And Seal was in the best part of his career. And then some people, and then I went right to Maxwell. And all these artists who loved Maxwell at the time heard my mix and wanted to get a hold of me. So I, and Prince built that. Of course, I have the, you know, I know what I am, but Prince was the one who made me unafraid. He helped me become unafraid of tackling anything. And that's the, if there is a place that built superheroes <laughs> out of people that had a better track record than Paisley Park, I don't know where it would be because mm. he, he built great musicians and great lighting designers and great sound engineers and great technical directors. And just, he just would stamp these people out just by being around him. So there's nothing nice. but good that comes out of it. So now we have to be careful, right? Now we're in the point where he isn't here. So there isn't the final stamp that goes on something before it gets shipped. So people yeah. have to guess and people have to say, well, they would have done it this way. And, yeah. and so you, you do your best guess. And if you didn't know him or have a relationship with him, you have to guess at how he would have released things or what he would have released or how it would have sounded or how it would have looked and what, and the answer to almost everything that's been done, you can guess would have been, no, don't do that, but mm. he's not here. So there is a reason to keep his legacy alive and it's up to people who are in control to take over and utilize, even if they didn't know Prince, they have to think in that spirit, whether you're yeah. controlling a, a, a legal side of things, whether you're controlling the artistic, uh, the distribution of the different material over a different time, or if you're, maybe if you're mixing it or if you're, you're editing the video or th- things like that, you have to think like him and you just go back to the, you just go back to the people that were there and did it. And then you get that input or you have the people that did it, do it. And so it's, um, it's, we're in, we're at that time. And uh, a lot of what's going on now will be part of the legacy of how he's remembered. So what, what is it about you that separated you from the rest of the others in live engineering? 
because the Prince was notorious for going through a slew of front of house engineers. I think even on the Gold Experience tour, he was doing his own mixing from the side of the stage. Yes. So was there something about you? Obviously, they like when you said with Morris and Kirk saying, call Scotty. Like, what was it that you could offer that the others couldn't? With a guy. Um, Yeah. There's two things that I can think of right offhand without having to think too hard about it was one was that I knew the material as well as he did. I mean, he would say it all the time. He'd say, you're a band member. You're a part of the band. Um, To me, back then when he said it, I didn't take it necessarily as a good thing because it it was a pressure thing. In other words, because he would tell band members, no mistakes. He used to say that all the time, no mistakes. And so, you know, being able to not make any mistakes I mean, the only person I know of that is like that is Alex Honnold, the kid climbing mm-hmm. El Capitan. You know, that's the only guy who actually <laughs> can make no mistakes. Right? Everyone makes mistakes. So, but I could perform at that level. And the other, the other thing is I never, maybe three things. He knew I had a high aptitude for the musicality and that I was built from this area. So I knew all about how, how that felt. Um, the second thing is I was unafraid to take the sort of chances that were necessary to inspire him, right? Because he would call it out during, especially during after shows. There was an after show in Los Angeles in 2004 at, I think it was, yeah, it was House of Blues. We, I think we did a couple around that time. One was in the small little founder's room or foundation room or something called like that. And then the other was in the actual big room. And after the big room show, I quickly downed a couple of glasses of wine. After the show was over, I went to deliver the dats to him. And he and Manuela were in the thing. He jumped up and said, Scotty, you're the man. And slapped my hand we kind of did that half hug <laughs> handshake thing. And I said, I know. And he, he loved that. He, he laughed. He laughed. He, he, um, to get a good hearty laugh out of Prince was, uh, really something. So when you know, you really made him laugh. That was, that was mm-hmm. uh, pretty special, but I, so I had the confidence and a little bit of the swagger, but then the third thing I would say is that I was unafraid to challenge him. And a lot of people say they did. I know a lot of the people who say they did. And, um, uh, you didn't say it <laughs> a lot of times it Sometimes it was, I know Morris did. I know Morris challenged him. Mm. I, I know Kirk challenged him. I, I may be speaking out of school there, but they, there are certain people in his life that were very candid at all times and to their detriment. And I was definitely one of them as evidenced by, I just, I think I left two or three times. I think when I left in Auckland, it was the third time that I walked out, but sometimes you reach your limit and you leave. But I believe that he, when someone's willing to leave something, over principle, not because they're weak, but over a principled entry into the discussion, I think it, it's looked at with respect. I would you say it's undeniable. That. Yeah, I'd say it's undeniable that I had his respect just because I would then still get a call back. I remember when he was leaving the theater in Auckland, and he walked past me, didn't say anything, and didn't know I was leaving. He didn't know I was leaving, but I knew I was leaving, and he left. And I watched him walk out, and I watched him walk around the corner. And watched it, you know, I, the last thing I could see was his hair. And as he turned around that corner, I remember thinking, well, that's the last time I, I mean, I, I probably, I might've mouthed it out loud. Like, well, that's it. That's the last time I'll see him. I didn't think it would be because of this reason, clearly, mm. but that certainly I would thought that's the last time I'm going to go through that and work with him. You can only walk away so many times before somebody says, just don't call him anymore. But, um, I don't look back with regret of leaving because I left on my own principle. And I was one of the few people who... Not few. I was one of the many, but <laughs> you could count them on probably your fingers and toes who said no to him in his career and actually challenged him or he would make fun of someone. He made fun of somebody once and I busted him on it and said, Hey, don't do that, man. You know, you're, and he said, why? It's, he said, that's funny. And I said, yeah, but your, your humor always comes at someone's expense. And then he yeah. turned around and turned around that's and it. went, hands went in the side pockets and he shot right out of there. 
<laughs> and and so, so people who are unafraid to do that, I think had his respect and being no is sometimes a powerful drug. You know, being, uh, excuse me, being told no is sometimes a powerful thing. Mm. People say, well, now I can trust him or now I can maybe not trust. I don't know if you trust me, but he, he, at least I can rely on him. You yeah. Know, rel- reliance is, is probably as, as far as people got with him. So, so just, um, just going back to when you're with, with Michael Bland. So you came in on the nude tour, was it 1990? I don't think I was, I didn't do the nude tour. Um, another drum tech was on the new tour. So I think I joined right at the end of that, which was, oh, okay. or maybe I was Michael's tech in 90. I thought I joined Michael in 89, 89 or 90. And, but I started showing up at Paisley Park at 90. So I was oh, okay. part of the, I was kind of officially brought on as his, as his tech. I think his tech lived somewhere in the South. So once he left, I was sort of looked at as the guy who would come in and set up drums for sessions. And when Michael had rehearsal with different bands and different formations or Prince would do a show, I would be there. So I just sort of took it on and was absorbed mm. into this huge batch mm. of people that were there to do shows. And Prince, again, remember, he rehearsed. He always was time. in perpetual rehearsal, even if it wasn't for, for a show. Mm. He was just kind of rehearsing and writing and working out ideas. And when people get, you know, when Michael Bland gets credit for coming up with a beat for Sexy MF, that's because it was probably worked out in the rehearsal room where he, Michael was playing yeah. that beat and, and Prince said, oh, keep doing that. And then it becomes a thing. And then I think they cut that song in one, if I remember right, that song, we that web was cut in one take. Even Tommy's solo, I think it was all yeah. just that. Wow. So Kirk was in the rock room playing the congas and, you know, Michael, I mean, it was all, most of that stuff was done so fast. And it was done, as I've said before, in one day because he would come in, he'd record it and mix it that day. And then it would be dumped to two and, and out. And then the console would be reset for, wow. uh, for the next song. So um, that's a real prodigious, that's a, that's a huge that's a huge task. No one would ever do that nowadays. Nobody has the guts to do that, to get everything done in one day or to cut it live. Yeah. Or song a day. That's the, that's the myth. I don't think it was always a song a day, but a lot of the times it could have been. I think it had to do with mixing it on an analog desk too. I don't know how his stuff's being mixed now. This, you know, the stuff that comes out that's released after his um, passing, uh, whether or not it's mixed on an analog console, whether it's mixed without Ooh. plugins, all of that yeah, stuff. We, we talked to that uh, to Nico Bolas just on our last show, and he told us the desk and everything that he had, the speakers. I can't remember it from memory, but he said the whole lot of it. Yeah, and, and what you want to do is yeah. in, in now that's different. You you know um, you can do it the way Prince did it. You could you could actually bring the stuff. I don't know if it was mixed. At, I don't know where it was mixed, but if you brought it to Paisley Park and put it through that desk and those speakers and listen to the incredibly high volume that Prince used to mix that mm. high volume, you could probably get it closer to what it would be, but it's still going to be within a ballpark because Prince had such good tracking engineers that um, mm. it was ar- always close when he would track it. It was really close. So you could reset a desk. Prince didn't much. I mean, I think I, maybe I talked to Susan about that or something, but where we're, um, you'd, you'd have the desk set and you would get everything. And there's no reason if you're done with that song to, and you want to move on to another song, why not just bounce it to two and get it ready for release and then move on to the next song? Mm. Prince didn't, he didn't, he never liked having the technical aspect of things get in the way. Now on a live setting, that is multiplied by a hundred <laughs> because I would have, you know, 80, 90 channels of inputs that, that I had to manage all that at one time and still be on the mark with every song. So I wasn't mixing one song. I was mixing many, many, many songs right in a row, all of which had their own settings on the desk. So I had to, Behind the scenes, I had to work with technicians and say, no, 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 you know, that clap is tuned too high. There are still some things that when I listen back to John Blackwell's clap on the 
2004 musicology tour, I kind of uh, went yeah. because it was just one clap sound. Between John and his tech, they only went with one tuning of clap. And everyone knows who knows Prince clap sounds. You've got the pop life clap that was extremely low and you've got the high claps and, you know, everything, the tuning makes a real difference. And, mm, um, yeah. and people like Bobby Z and, and, uh, the original, the, the revolution members, they understand that that's part of their lexicon. They could probably hear a clap and say, Oh, that's the clap from, uh, yeah, you know, I know that this song. <laughs> yeah, I know that clap. And so, um, mm. in a live setting, it's really trying to get people to where they don't go, huh? Like, what's that? Mm. What's that? <laughs> and yeah. And so I, I, I always, if I could go back in time, the only thing I would change is how deeply I worked with the technicians and musicians to get the sounds right. Because in dealing with legacy material, it's important to get the sounds right because that's what people remember. So your first big tour was at Diamonds and Pearls? Uh, must've been Diamonds and Pearls. Yeah. With the stage that went around the top. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, yeah. Didn't, did Carmen open on that tour? In, in Europe. In London and yeah, a few places yeah. she did. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So yeah, that was the first one. And that was, um, and that was a huge tour. I mean, you know, everyone knows how big that massive tour production. Yeah. yeah. Massive production. Yeah. Right. And I'm not sure if, you know, honestly, I don't know if Roy did that one. He probably did. If he didn't, it was, it was, it was beautiful. And it was um, certainly using, if he didn't, if Roy didn't do it, it was with Roy's inspiration because um, there's a sensibility that Prince had that was always very immediate. He could get, Prince could give you an answer really quickly. And it was almost always the right answer. So he was, mm -hmm. um, he was good at lighting. He was a great, he, he was actually a great lighting engineer. Um, he could run lights himself and he would just give it such a great feel. Uh, he might not have had all the looks down and to get a really deep look, but he, he knew how to punctuate things. He was probably as because lighting is just playing a desk the same way you would play a keyboard mm -hmm. and sound is just, it, it's an issue of balance and space spatially side to side and balance from front to back. And so um, levels. So if it's thought on that basic level, it's really not that difficult. And I always, sometimes I suffer that imposter syndrome, you know, that is where that you feel that someday somebody's going to come up and go, no, you, nothing you're doing is special. You don't know what you do. Anybody can. <laughs> and it'll all be taken away. But yeah. um, simplicity is, is the, the hallmark of any, anybody who's super competent, you know, hyper competent people are usually simple in their approach. They have a simple approach and it works and it's tried and true and it's not too, you, you want to keep as many joints out of it as possible. You want to keep a straight line. And Prince was always good at getting right to what he wanted to do. And, and it, it helped in his arrangements because his arrangements were so clean. He was such a great live arranger and he would change yeah. his live arrangements based on the complexity of the, it might be a really complex arrangement for recording and for release, but live he would either dumb it down based on the size. I shouldn't say dumb it down. He would, he would arrange around the size of the venue. And for a sound engineer, if that's a dream, it's a dream. Mm -hmm. You know, when Prince would tell everybody, hey, we're all going to help Scotty out. We're going to make his job easier. Let's make it easier. This this. Yeah. It, I was just, I wanted to just clutch my hands and look up to the sky and because he, and just <laughs> in, in appreciation because that's less work. I would have to night farm and I'd have to go around all the, all the uh, different musicians say, Hey, what are you playing on this? Yeah. Let's pull some of the reverb and let's pull some of that echo. And let's, and that's what I usually have to do in a, in a way of kind of getting to get things done without offending people's music and artistic sensibility. But Prince did that for me. He always laid a great groundwork for me. And I think it was based out of a mutual respect. One thing I've got to ask you about is Michael B's drum sound. Mm -hmm. Like that is just a monster, massive kick and snare sound. Now, was that something that Michael wanted to sound like that or Prince was directing, I want sound like this? How did Michael B's just monster sound come about? Um, well, first of all, it comes from the player. 
it, yeah, Ma- Michael, yeah. <laughs> Michael, <laughs> he hits Michael it hard. A, yeah, he hits, he hits hard, but he, uh, what's overlooked with Michael because of his size as a person is Michael would, we've had many, many, I mean, dozens of discussions over the four years about, in, he said, you have to live, you have to be intentional. So he would just say, you know, loud and intentional. You have to play with intention. So even if he was doing a cross stick or a side stick, it would still loud. You know, he wouldn't lose that dynamic because you have to push it out to all these people and push air across their chest. Live, I think Michael was captured better than he was on recording. Um, it's difficult to make <clears throat> Michael sound on recording the same way it is to be next to him or in front of his kit when he plays. It's just massively, you talk about massive, it was massively satisfying and gratifying for players to come over and bass players to put one foot up on his riser and play with Michael because it just, he enveloped you with that, the sound, mm. that largesse, you know, the largeness of his sound and, and the precision as well. And Michael's a clock as far as time. So he's a pleasure to, yeah. with him to play, but drum sounds, I worked on a, a bunch of different kits. I suppose I had the most um, experience working with the, what turned into a gold kit, the gold sonar yeah. kit. I believe it was white before that. If I'm not mistaken, I might be mixing it up with one of Michael's personal kits. He had a sonar kit, but once Prince did the gold wrap on the kit, he had that done. I didn't, I wasn't a part of that decision. I showed up one day and they were just gold and I went, oh, great. And they were just wrapped with a thin metal mm. and that choked the sound a little bit, but it actually, it actually favored what Prince wanted to do. He wanted all the sounds to be small, excuse me, to be short and tight. So he, mm. he, um, and I've told the story before, but he, I was alone in Studio C tuning drums one day, one morning, it was a morning. I think a Saturday morning and Prince walked in and um, heard me tuning. He just watched me for a second and listened. And I just didn't interrupt what I was doing and say, Hey, you know, yeah, you know, what do you need or whatever? I just kept doing it. And I hit, hit all three toms. I kept going. And he said, I know, I know you're proud of making those toms sing, but, um, and have a long trail tail on them. He said, but I need it to sound like a Cadillac door shutting each Tom. I want it to sound, I said, I want the sound to be there and then gone. That way when he does, and he comes up around the kit and he sits down and I move and he, he did a drum fill back to to And, and you could hear every, you know, he said, see how all those notes are blended together. I need them to end quickly. And just like you're in the studio, Scotty, just make it, just think like you're in the studio. And so that's had an effect on me in the way I tell drum techs how to tune drums now. And I say, Hey, I need you to you know, that F sharp, I need that to come up to a G and I need that to do this. And what, or, or how do you feel if we did this? Let's try this and see how you feel about it. Make people know that they have ownership in it. And it's not a, dic- you know, it's not a dictatorship, but just to kind of keep things musical and Prince knew what he wanted. And he took the time to show me how to craft Michael's sound. You know, he knew that he had to get Michael's sound. I, I don't particularly think that Michael was super well represented. It's just hard to capture Michael on recording. You have to sort of see him live. Mm. Um, he, because yeah, it, you can't so compare dang. the live sound to what you hear on the record. Like the no. live sound is just, it just kills you. It is just so big compared yes. to anything that was on on an album. That's crazy. Yes. Yeah, even the big, Michael's known for a few things. One of them is the sexy MF beat. Another is the big drum fill in Diamonds and Pearls. Ah, um, uh, yeah. And when you when I listen back to Diamonds and Pearls, I tend to think it was overproduced. I think the actual song, that I, actually that record was super there was, it was a production heavy record. And mm-hmm. I, I believe that the drum sound could have been better on that. But again, Prince would disagree with me and I would be wrong just by <laughs> the fact that he was the one he who was did Prince. it. And, <laughs> yeah, he was Prince and he was, the, how he, it was how he wanted it. But Prince could always, he just moved quickly. You'd throw mics in front of a kit and what you got is what you got. And what, what engineers, what studio engineers did in the background was up to them. And I don't know. I mean, you'd have to ask somebody who put the multi-tracks up on the now, nowadays and put them up and see what's there. But I tend to think there was some replacement going on 
of some of those things, you can replace kick drums. And if you had a poorly mic kick drum or Prince forced you to do it too quickly and you didn't like the sound, you just go in and replace it. It's way easier now in the digital age yeah. than it was back then. But you could you could do it. You just have to uh, work harder and work longer. But Michael, Michael, the, the secret to Michael's, his secret sauce is him. He makes mm. any drum kit sound like that. So my job was just to help his size and sound come through the drum kit, be amplified Bring it through out. the kit. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So after you were done with, you left Michael Bland in 94, and then I think it was 2000, you came back. I guess you got the call. Yeah, I got the call. He was, um, was, I'll, just uh, say, I'll just say my first Prince show that I saw live in person was the 13th of June, 2000, at uh, I think it was Northrop Auditorium in Minneapolis. Were you okay. on by then, or you can't I remember was pro- the dates? I, I can't remember. I think I started in, I tend to think it was later than the Northrop show, because I believe one of my first gigs was Boston. I, 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 I have no idea. I haven't looked this up and I, I don't even know, but I believe I, re- I found out about a friend's death in Boston, uh, a, a bass player that Prince used quite often, a guy named Doug Nelson, great bass player. It was a bass player for Dr. Mambo's combo, the band that Prince would come uh-huh. and see in clubs and Doug died in a, in a uh, tragically in an accident. It was his, you know, narrative. Our time was up and he, um, I left the tour. i left one of the first shows to go back to be part of Doug's uh, funeral and plans for uh-huh. that. So I believe Boston was, uh, you'd be able Boston. to triangulate, you know, when that was in the first show of some, one of the tours. But, uh-huh. and at that point he, he was distrustful of engineers. And so I think I came on and there was some other engineer mixing part of the desk. And I think I, Prince had me start by watching them. He sort of surreptitiously said, just, just watch what they're doing. I don't like what he said. He did say, I don't like what they're doing. Watch what they're doing. And then you're going to take over. And, and said, then okay. don't do it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Pretty much, you know, figure out what not to do. And, um, I remember it being not good. And, um, and so I sort of had to, oh, you know, with Takumi's help, I sort of had to work my way around those things and make sure that things sounded legacy. And then at one point he just said, all right, Takumi probably called me and said, you're, you're doing it all now. He doesn't want that guy there. Mm-hmm. And so, that's how it happened. There's a lot of, a lot of times it was sort of a Indiana Jones, you know, with the skull and the bag of sand, you sort of have to replace <laughs> someone yeah. on the go. And other times it was between tours. He would just get rid of a bunch of people and take on new people. And so it started then rather innocuously. And I didn't even know I was going to go back to whomever I was mixing. And, and uh, it just, I just hung in there and um, he, the work really came. We worked a lot in 2000, 2001, two uh, was of course a different band on the, um, uh, what tour was that? Rainbow. Well, 2002, you had yeah, One yeah. Night Alone. That was One Night Alone. That was the Rainbow yeah. Children, right? That was that record. And three was kind of a down year. There wasn't a ton of stuff. Did we come to Australia? Yeah, 2003. 2003. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I, I seem to remember that I, uh, off memory. And uh, and 04 was, you know, of course. Musicology. Yeah. Musicology. yeah. yeah. Well, I'm just that, thinking of the shows that I've attended. Like, so apart from that June 2001, I saw a One Night Alone show. I, hmm. some, I saw some musicology shows. I saw the Welcome to Australia shows in 2012. I saw the Piano and Mike shows in 2016. So Good. you have seen, you were there for all my shows that I saw. So thank you very much yeah. for the great sound. <laughs> yes, it's my pleasure. I hope it was good. I'm there for you. As I always say, I don't, uh, as far as front of house engineers go, I, I think I have a very small ego. I don't, uh, engineers can, they can, typically they, front of house engineers sort of become, they feel like they are the band or they are the artist and they that, that happens very, very typically. But I've always feel, felt like I represented what people, what would I want to hear if I were there? Um, yeah. If you asked me to go deep on some of Prince's tracks off Emancipation, I would say, oh, you know what? I don't know. 
I've heard every song at least several times, but just in study, in my study, even if we were doing one song off a record, I'd study the record intensely because I wanted to get the feel for that record. And it, it informed mm-hmm. my sensibility about how to mix that one song. But um, I'm not a super fan in the way that people can remember dates of every show and such, but I certainly had to study the material and know it. And um, in 2016 was a, was a special, um, that all happened. Just, it just sort of came up and happened and then it was over. Just like that. It was mm. so fast. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a that's a perfect segue, Scotty. You must have been reading our minds because I we kind of did that on purpose. Yeah. <laughs> see, if I, see if you guys took the bait. Yeah. So, because <laughs> uh, we've spoken about your live mixing and, and and a number of other things, but you know, moving through the eras, we just spoke about one night alone, musicology, and so then a period of time went past before you came back once again for what was supposed to be the piano and microphone tour commencing in Europe in late 2015. So the presumption is that Prince must have already been rehearsing for at least a few months at some point in early to mid 2015 to be able to go out on the road and do this piano and mic show in various European countries. So assuming that's correct, were you involved at that early stage? And I, I was not, I was with another artist in 2015 and, um, what I do remember is because I got the call in November, early November mm. of 2015 to come back. Okay. Uh, and I was, the, the timing was perfect because I, I, I got a call after my last sound check of a tour. Oh, um, perfect. The last show in Las Vegas of a tour. And, you know, the phone rang and it said, Kirk Johnson. I said, yes. You know? <laughs> and I answered and Kirk said, yep, he wants to talk to you again. So I came out the next day. I flew home after that show and came out and canceled the next tour to cancel the plans. I had to go into rehearsals and tour and just started back pretty much on salary with Prince. And, um, he was in a great, uh, state of mind. I thought, um, he was very creative and he was excited about, uh, what he was doing. We were still doing NPG stuff and getting ready for, uh, the new year's Eve show, uh, which is a private show that the MPG, I think it might've, I don't know. I think it might've been the last show the MPG did uh, mm-hmm. with him, but, um, yeah, I hadn't really thought about that. And so, I don't know about what he was planning earlier in 2015 because I didn't keep up with things as I was doing that, but I uh, joined up again and, and was basically asked by one of the people in the managerial roles, we'll say, to just go back on the salary and um, no matter what was happening. And so I made all sorts of sketches. I still have them all. I like, really got the feel of what Prince was doing and saying um, he was talking about couches and putting things here and there in the, in the big room. And, and then I would bounce something off him. And I said, well, what if we put, uh, I remember the, a great idea I had that sadly never came to fruition was that I maybe had never been mentioned before was putting Kirk across the room on an, on a VIP riser. And then on another VIP riser would be mono neon, you know, or Ida, whoever was playing bass oh. and then putting Marcus on a, a riser at the another part of the room and having the players all on these VIP risers around the room and having Prince in the piano position in front of the doors and also out in the center on a round riser in the center. And I drew it all out and I showed it to, but (laughs) and and presenting things to Prince, he could never do it. The way not to do it is to go, Hey man, I have this idea. This might be cool. This might help because then when a band finishes on the main stage, we can go right on. There's no Mm. uh, tech transfer time. There's no turnover time. We can just start as soon as a band gets done and they go, bam, you can go back down, you know, and then start, start playing immediately after. And so I thought that was a great idea. And I drew all these things, but the way to do it isn't to say, Hey, I have this great idea. It's to just show him. So I had these plans for this thing printed out on big paper. And I didn't think I laminated that one. 
I'm a Virgo, so I usually laminate everything. But um, I, I printed them out. I printed them out and and showed them. And all he said was, "Yeah, that'd be cool." That was his only response. And he said that as long as there's no click tracks. And so I said, "Okay." It, mm-hmm. it wasn't really pertinent to that discussion, but I, I thought it was an odd thing to say. As long as there's no mm-hmm. click tracks. And and I said, "Okay, cool." So I was kind of making plans, just getting ready for shows that we didn't know were going to occur. There was supposed to be one in Miami that didn't end up happening. That was they had planned to happen. It didn't happen. He pulled out of it, or they pulled out of it, or something. And then we went and did a New Year's Eve thing in St. Bart's. And then after that, it was all the focus when I came back was on the piano. Um, the, it, it just started. Uh, we came back and it was all about a piano then. And so uh, I made a plan to, um, and fought him a little bit over uh, using, he wanted to use an analog console. And I had one, there was one there, I think an old little Midas console. And I knew that I would need to multi-track this and that it was important to do that. And I knew that it was going to be noisy. An analog desk yeah. like that was going to be noisy and not sound the best that it could and have limited equalization and such. So I just, I didn't listen to him and I just brought in the desk I wanted to bring in and he would, he would bristle at a digital, digital. console yeah. Yeah. when it came in, he would bristle at it. <clears throat> but one of the ways I got, I got through that was a mini argument about a song called fix your life up because he said, I just don't like digital. You know, you can't buy, dig- you can't listen to digital. You can't buy it and enjoy it. And I said, well, I just bought Fix Your Life Up on the way here today in my car and listened to it. And it's digital. And there's no other way of taking it. I said, unless you want to roll 24-track machines in and we record it all on that, I think the way to do it is this. And I just, the, the argument just kind of went away. And um, he was cool about that, though. He was, he was always cool about if you, if you stood your ground a little bit, right, and leaned into him, he either said no or he let it go. I, he very rarely said, okay, yeah, you're right. I mean, those words didn't. Yeah. Don't come out of his mouth. (laughs) Um, And so he just didn't say anything. And what I did is I I smartly moved the console out next to the piano and and it was labeled, you know, digitally. It said piano left, piano right, voice. He always called it the voice and not the vocal. So I said piano left, piano right. And those faders were linked. So they operated as a pair. And um, and then the voice and, and he played it and it was fine with him. So we went with it. So that whole period in general, even discounting or putting to the side, you know, the tragic circumstances that would eventuate and, yes. and the whole air around the last few months of, you know, of Prince's career and life, really, if we can in some way put those to one side and just think about artistically and creatively what that period was like. I mean, you already mentioned he seemed to be in good spirits and creatively coming up with all sorts of sorts of stuff. Both he's putting out ideas, you're putting out ideas. The picture that I get is pretty much the two of you because it's such an intimate, you know, piano and mic. It's him sitting at an instrument singing. It's pretty much just you you and him, right? Is that the picture that we that we should be painting in our minds? You know, yes. as far as rehearsing this um, show and and up unto the piano and mic gala in uh, January. I don't want to make any mistake here about this. I had my creative input to the piano and microphone show was limited to it, not exclusively, but limited basically to making it sound good in the room at Paisley Park, which is a monumental task and for which I have Kirk Johnson to thank because mm. Kirk Kirk supported me in bringing in all these different formations. We must have had three or four formations of speakers that we brought in there and the way we set them up <clears throat> and what on what we settled really worked. And um, it wasn't ideal, but it, it really, it worked and I, I made it work. And that was a huge thing to be able to have him tell me, Scotty, I've never been able to sing back here. And he backed away from the mic about two and a half feet, which is, that's forever. 
that's infinity if, uh, as far as being away from a microphone. Yeah. And he said, I've always wanted to sing back here and play piano. And I said, no problem. And I got the right microphone and I bought it myself, still have it. I, I knew what mic, as soon as he said that, I said, I know the mic. And I went and bought it and used it. And I said, hey, I, I'm, I'm bringing in a wired mic. Is that okay? And he said, yeah, no problem. I'm not going to get up. And I said, cool. So I knew that would be right. It just, things sort of fell into place, but I want to make very clear that my artistic input into that show was a couple things. The mic choice, um, uh, oh, the effects were all just what I, you know, Purple Rain has that echo on it. You have to do something in the water, does not compute, has a, a little doubler echo on it. All those things I know, they're like, I know them in my sleep. So I knew what I would do. And I had the whole bank of echoes ready for his voice. And he always gave me a, enough rope to hang myself with to be able to do whatever kind of creative echoes and effects that I wanted to do. I was given full license and full control over that. He knew I was going to have ballads sound sexy and with a lot of reverb and some echo. And he knew I always made the right choice. He didn't have to second guess what I was going to do for songs. Or if he did a a kiss, he knew I would take all the reverb off his voice, things like that. Right. You know, things that Mm. real fans know. So effects wise, microphone choice and instrument wise, how it would be chosen. I chose the Yamaha. Oh, I forgot what it was called. C seven X S H. It was a silent piano. Uh, the Paisley park show, January 21st, uh, 2016 was Prince's motif keyboard in his purple piano. But in Australia, we used an actual grand Yamaha grand, but it was a silent piano. So he could go from the grand sound to the grand with strings. So he could just change on his own. And he, of course, always wondering, yep. always wondering yeah, about how that. Does he do because, that. Yeah, exactly. The cool, <laughs> the cool thing is that that um, I think Kirk and I arranged to get a, a C7, yeah, C7XSH brought to Paisley Park. And I put all these monitors around Prince in a circle and turned it on and made it sound great. And um, then I thought, well, if he wants the ground and strings, he doesn't just have a fader anymore. He has to actually go down and change patches. And when he came in, he played a couple of different patches. And I said, do you want the Rhodes? Do you want to sound like a Wurlitzer? Do you want, you know, any, and clavinet? And he said, no, I, he said, I hate when instruments don't sound like the instrument that they look like. And I said, mm-hmm. okay. And so that, that was a late date to throw another one in the, in my Brolidex and in, in my brain. Right. But I did. And I said, okay. I said, okay, well then you're going to have to change from patch one. And there are 19 patches. <laughs> so you're going to have to go in between songs, look down and go, instead of going all the way up to patch 17 or something. I said, you're going to have to go down and go 19, 18, 17, right? You're going to have yeah. to hit the down arrow three times and then trust it's going to be on the right patch. He never Is made Is that what he was controlling on the iPad? Uh, on no, the, I, the iPad was, was lyrics. And I, lyrics. There's, nothing, there's nothing I'm saying right now that's giving anything away or is, shouldn't hmm. be talked about. I want to make that clear. It's not a, a mystery what was on the iPad. The iPad were just lyrics. Not that he forgot them necessarily. He wanted to put songs in an order that made sense chronologically to how his feeling was for that night in that show. So he would sometimes swipe left and go right to the next song and just say, no, and he would skip songs and go to the next song because he wasn't feeling it. So that was just Hmm. a reminder. The lyrics were a reminder to him of what the the content of the song. yeah. Yeah, and available. So that was what was on top of the piano. The piano down to his left, his left hand, would have to leave the lower register and go... 1918, 17. And then he'd have grand and strings. And he'd go up three, one, two, three, up to one and start playing grand again. Never made a mistake, of course. Spent very little time practicing it and it was perfect. So that's mm. So that contribution of the, the actual instrument that he chose, that I chose for him, that knowing that would be right. Trying to mic a piano, you know, in trying to uh, mic a, a, and support a real piano through a, he wanted a giant PA. He told me, don't skimp on the PA. I want a huge PA. And then he sent me a picture of 
Sydney Opera House. <laughs> and we were still in, the, in America planning that tour. And he and said, he said to you, um, Peach and Blake podcast did a show challenging me to play <laughs> at the Sydney Opera House a few years ago. I'm finally going to do it. <laughs> Maybe that's what he was saying. It's very cryptic. But he, um, but he said, never skimp on the PA. And he showed this PA, uh, somebody who had put in a ton of PA. And so I did. I called the company over there. I said, fill it up, boys. Like make it big. I can shut off what I need to. But hmm. I remember they were the promoter was going to shut down all the seats behind, you know, uh, in the upper uh, rise. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And they had that black curtain down. And I said, "What? What are you guys doing back here?" And the promoter said, uh, "And Kirk was always busy with Prince, so he, he I had to represent everything there, you know, during the day." And and I said, "No, no, 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 no. Like we have the PA covering it, right?" And the PA guy said, "Yeah." And I said, "Well, lift that curtain, sell those seats, like fill it up, hmm. fill the whole thing all the way around." And that was that, I think that held doors, just getting the curtains pulled up and getting people and might've even ended up being general admission. Who knows? I mean, how they seated that, but I, I had to quickly say, no, open all that up. We can envelop them in sound. We've got sound pointed every different direction. (laughs) And, um, he wanted to. Well, I I can just interject right there is the first opera house show. I was seated in that back side section, like behind the stage. Right. And the second show was down on the main floor. Yes. The sound was a lot better down on the main floor. Yes. Sort of. And, I was off like behind Prince on that side and the sound was good, but it was a lot better down in the main room on the floor there. Well, the, think about it this way. This goes for the 2002 One Night Alone live tour, uh, which I'm really proud to say we got a live record out of that, you know, to stereo. Mm. And that was very challenging for this reason. Same as the piano tour. The places that were played in 2002 and in 2016 were meant to amplify sound on their own. You could play a piano with the mm. lid open and it would be everywhere in the Sydney Opera House. Yeah. Right? What we did there was support it by pumping it out to people when really it was meant to speak to the whole audience automatically, acoustically, designed by engineers who know what they're doing and acoustically architects know how to throw sound to every corner. Mm. So conceivably at the Sydney Opera House, you just sing and everyone can hear it everywhere. To support mm. it with a lot of speakers hanging in the air, rock and roll style, the challenge is defensive a lot of the time. So Sydney, I remember being being fine. I was, you know, I was kind of on stage there. You saw I would walk out and then I'd walk kind of in that yeah. side pocket area. There's nowhere to really yeah. hide. So I just, I had them put pipe and drape and I just sort of hid downstage left in that corner. That was a particular, those shows were sort of a not getting along phase. That whole phase was sort of a not getting along together phase. And to your point earlier, when I was the only person there, I was the only target as well. So if things Uh, weren't going well, you couldn't yell at John Blackwell. You couldn't yell at Renato. Mm. You couldn't, you couldn't tell Morris his stuff was taking too long, you know, to to program. And you're not going to yell at yourself. So no. (laughs) And, um, and I'm not blaming anything on anyone. It was just the circumstance was such that it was such great success. And the reviews were off the chart for this sort of Mm. autobiographical, uh, the, the, the Australia and, I don't want to forget New Zealand either. The Australia and New Zealand shows were less autobiographical than the Paisley Park show. That that January 21st, 2016 show will probably go down in my memory as the greatest show we ever did. And it's not because I was involved and it's not because I was in the room. It's because we rarely got a glimpse into his personal life and that those two shows were autobiographical. He thanked musicians that inspired him along the way. He talked about David Bowie who had just passed. And, um, you know, as I mentioned on somewhere else that he, he said, well, I might do a David Bowie song, but probably not. Cause I don't really know any, but he said, uh, I'm not into, no, he didn't say I'm not into tributes. He said, oh, I'll let all those, he said, I'm not going to do a tribute. I'm, I'll let all those other musicians do tributes. And he sort of rolled yeah. his eyes at it, meaning 
he wasn't really into tributes, but he, um, but he mentioned Bowie and he mentioned Lisa and Wendy and he mentioned, um, and he thanked me during the show, which was a, a surprising mm. thing. And he, and he thanked Kirk in the second show. And that's really important. That's really special. And there was a different feel to that show that none of us had ever really seen and mm. heard because of the autobiographical nature of it. Somewhere online, you can find the, I don't know how someone did that unless Prince did it himself. It was basically the entire script for the show. And unless you recorded it and went back and did that or mm. put it on there, I don't know how someone did that, but it was basically, or maybe it was cl a close, a reasonable facsimile of that show where you can see sort of what he was talking about in the order. And he didn't, I, I want to make clear also, and I, I wasn't finished with talking about my influence on that piano show, that he, he didn't tell me the night before when we had spent several hours, three or plus hours talking the show out. He didn't tell me it was going to be autobiographical. So he didn't tell mm. me that. It was I discovered that at the same time everyone else did. He just went out and played. And he said, I'm going to come out. And he said, do you have anything cool for the intro? And I said, yeah, I'll, you know, I said, what am I going to be playing? And he said, I've got a playlist for you. And we sat and talked it out like you would, you know, plan out a sports play or something. And he said, then you'll fade the music and I'll come through the doors and do you have smoke? And I said, yeah, we can get smoke. And we all kind of figured out how to get two smoke machines in there and, and uh, a big yellow light from behind. And he walked up and, and he said, I'm going to start with a, the theme to Batman. But um, before I do that, I, I want some cool effect. And I said, oh, how about the effect I did on, on your voice in 2004? And I had it ready. And you know, that's the thing about nah. Prince's, you were always ready. So I said, I said, it was, it's this. And I said, try your mic. And he said, check one, two. And then I said, okay, try it again. And he would check one, two, check one, two, check one, two, check one. And it had this cool oh, des yeah, descending yeah. echo. He just nodded, just turned and nodded. And I said, okay, cool. And that was that. And then that was, okay, I'll start with that. And he said, just have the echo on me and I'll do a little talking. As soon as you hear me play Batman, then pull the echo off. And so everything was sort of like a, a kind of like a play, uh, a sports play. And he said, just if I skip songs, just do your thing and hit all the effects. And I said, okay, cool. I didn't really have to mix a lot. That's why I was on stage in Australia. And part of that was so that he could see what I was doing and he could, I was near him if he needed anything because I was his monitor engineer as well. So he said, at one point it was in, uh, it was in Sydney. He said, why aren't you out there? And I said, because I filled the room with sound. I, it should sound the same to me anywhere I am and not just out there. That's one problem engineers have is they to try and make it so great for where they are. And you're the, you know, 0.001% of the crowd. Yeah. So I try and I walk around a lot and make sure it sounds the same everywhere. And so I said, I can be on stage and it could sound the same. So, um, and I had to be near him because there was no other staff and that's uh, mm. the same. So I, everything I do is for a reason and I had my reason for doing it. I think it ended up costing me a little bit because I had, he had quicker access to me to yell or mm. to turn around and look and shoot a mean look or whatever. And get the look. Yeah. The look. And, and um, you got as, the look, Scotty. As, you know, I try. And, <laughs> As, as um, other people who were there can attest, I, I didn't do anything differently any night than I did on any other night. So it's just uh, per perceptions, a lot of, a lot of that. And um, now the questions have been answered after his death and after a cause of death where you can kind of go back and go, aha, you know, that's why there was perception of this. And that's why it was perceived this way. And so, but when you're in a hotel room in, in uh, Melbourne and uh, you get a little pain in your chest, that shoots from side to side and you got a family at home. That was when I went, you know what? I don't think I need to be here. This is a little mm. bit too stressful. And, um, I can't imagine what it's like to, to launch a rocket with people on it. Um, mm. but, um, I just thought, well, it might be better for the show if it, it's time to leave and, and let this go on. So I decided not to make that trip from at that point, the plan was for me to 
I don't know if the plan was ever really to have me on the jet with Ian Kirk, but the plan was to get, we had to, we had to haul ass from uh, Auckland all the way across to Perth. Ah, to Perth, yeah. And I thought, you know what? I don't think I'd make it there in time on commercial airline to get there and then get in the arena and go, oh my God, no, change all this and change mm. that. And it was a different promoter doing that show and a different PA company. Yeah. I thought, oh my God. So I, I just thought, you know what? That's it. I don't need to deal with that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And plus I had a really kind of a delicious project that I was on and I thought, I'm just going to see if that's, I still just fly back to LA and do that. And um, I think they made the mistake of flying me home uh, to Minneapolis. And then I got, had to get right on a plane and fly back immediately to LA. And candidly, I, um, I didn't look back. I, I didn't check in and see how things went. I didn't look, I was just busy and generally uninterested at that mm. time. And, um, and then it was only later. And I remember finding out about his death. I was on a flight from LA to Minneapolis at that time. And um, I overheard some musicians say it. I could tell it clearly there were musicians <clears throat> across the aisle and I didn't believe it. And then suddenly when we came in, when I got, when I hooked up to the internet service on the plane, my phone sounded like a razor you know, like a, an electric razor, it just went and just nonstop, nonstop yeah. buzzing when I got service. And, uh, mm. and then, and there it is. And I don't remember feeling, I don't know how you guys felt. I'd be interested to know how you felt, but I, um, I didn't have, I didn't go into shock and I didn't, I wasn't super duper surprised. And I just, it was just sort of nothing for a couple of months. It took me, oh, maybe three months before I was emotional about it. And I thought, oh man, like this is the amount of time that's gone by where I would then get another call to come out and do something. Mm. Right. So I just figured we'll have our fight. And then a few months later we'll, but when I kind of realized, Hey, there'll never be another call, you know, at least yeah. to with him in person. And so that, that's when it sort of hit me a little bit, but I have a different philosophy than most people about death. I'm not a, it doesn't phase me. And so I, um, I thought, well, there it is. Yeah. I was going to say, I was sort of you- similar to that. When when he okay. when I heard the news, I think it, we got the news in Australia. It was like 5 a.m. or something. It was early. And like, you just woke up and there's just a million messages. But I was similar to you. I, but I was a bit shocked and surprised, but I strangely wasn't emotional. And that, again, didn't come till, you know, a few months later. And it really like hit me that like, oh, yeah, he's gone. But at the time, I was just like, this has happened. But there wasn't really a big emotion connected with it. And that took a while to come, but that's just me. I don't know. Yeah. And everybody, nobody owns the grieving process. We all have our way of processing things. And and um, people, some people deep dive and some people uh, lay off and, and they don't listen to him anymore. Or they say, well, he's not here. I'll never see another live show. Or I never got to see him live. Or I, there's yeah. all sorts, you know, every, you, we, you guys have heard every different formulation yeah. I can imagine of experience. And that's why, um, and watch me do this. That's why it was a joy for me to get a call from Bobby Z to, uh-huh. to, to, he said like, you're the right guy and you're the perfect guy to do this. You were there, you know, covered 26 years and you know, his sounds and you mixed every single one of his drummers. I don't know if I can name a drummer. I didn't mix. I think I tweeted okay. at some point about a year ago of all the, dr- all the drummers I mixed in. I think what about all- Chris Coleman? No. Uh-huh. I don't even know who that is. Oh, we're talking 20, uh, 2010. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So I missed Chris Coleman. You missed him. Mm. Okay. Um, so Bobby called and, and said, well, let's get together. So that's how the revolution thing happened. And it was sort of, I look at it as a response to what happened in 2016 and losing him. So it was a pretty natural progression for me to go from the piano tour to that. But I'm I'm glad, I'm proud of the work we did on the piano tour and again, being linked artistically because you just simply can't be a technician and not be linked in the, uh, uh, the artistic process. It's not possible. Yeah. Technicians yeah. aren't given enough credit anyway. 
their their Grammys aren't uh, televised, and and um, uh, you just have to hear about it later. But but it's a it's a huge thing to be able to be a technician, and then to be a the toughest seat in the business is Prince's sound guy. You know that everyone knew that. So to have succeeded and and to stood stand my ground and and work with him as long as I did is um, I'm very very proud of that, and I have him to thank because he he you know as Dave Hampton said, many are called, few are chosen. Mm. <laughs> and few yeah. and few hang around right and fewer yeah. hang around right that could be the third thing and and the words the wise words of susan rogers who um when she learned of my setup and learned what i was how i was doing all this with a one small desk you know one digital desk she said well scotty it's like i always say and she used all four fingers to to, <laughs> to to say it she said the best do the most with the least for the longest and um and that's that pretty much sums it up prince wanted things immediate he wanted to do it simple I was super, super happy for him as a person that he was able to go out on an autobiographical sort of way and as a solo performer. I think that's mm. important to be remembered. He came in as a solo performer and producer, and he yeah. really went out yeah. as a solo performer. The only thing, I, yeah. um, I, I wish he would have gotten together with the revolution, but that's a selfish yeah. uh, a selfish uh, desire. So I, I think it was very apropos. And, and we have all this great music uh, to which we can listen and put on and putting our ear holes and uh yeah there's a lot there's a lot there to listen to well i wouldn't mind circling back just for a second to sydney again and and i guess piano and mike um just to get a little bit more insight those were you know speaking of how autobiographical the gala was on the 21st of january and luckily that's been recorded for posterity and maybe one day will be released but for all all the australians and i guess international visitors that attended those australian and new zealand shows there were differences in those shows. So yes, they were not as autobiographical. He wasn't as talkative. He seemed to be a little bit more somber and introverted, but there were quite striking differences. So one of the most striking was the opening, utilizing that Memoirs of a Geisha track, yes. Confluence. Do you know much about the genesis of using that piece? Was that discussed? You know, How did you find out about that? Because or, or, um, you would have had to dial that in, I'm assuming. Yes. He walked up to me on the when we had our meeting on January 20th, uh, the night before the gala, he had a CD in his hand and was uh, kind of spinning it with his uh, finger. He had his finger, one finger was through it and his other hand was sort of spinning. He said, here, let's put this on as walk-in music. And it, it was just written in Sharpie, walk-in wow. music. And um, mm. I, I don't know where, it, I have it here somewhere, you know, somewhere it is. So he said, just play this. And I listened, well, he said track 23. So he said, track 23 will be our walk-in track. And I said, okay, man, you know, and he said, just watch me. And then when I come in, you'll fade it down. You'll know when to fade it down. I said, cool. But of course that's a nebulous, that's left up to my interpretation of that. Well, how was I going to do a walk-in playlist? He gave me a specific walk-in playlist to play 23 tracks, but not play track 23 until he went on. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. so what I did. How do so you time that out? Yeah. Yeah. So I put everything in my iPod. I made one playlist were track were songs one through twenty two that was walk in and then I had a walk on playlist which was only track twenty three and then I he said I want you to fade it at I don't know what it was I could go back and figure out just by looking at the track I think he said fade it out at you know forty nine seconds or whatever and I said okay so what I did is I I threw it into a, a program and I just did the fade automatically at forty nine seconds and so knowing he always hits his marks and he wouldn't be late I was ready for him and so when people walked into the gala. It was one through 22 were rolling on repeat for an Hmm. hour or two. And then once he was ready, I just went from whatever track we were at, maybe 18 or something. I kind of quick faded out and then hit play on 23. That Memories of a Geisha went in and then he came on. I started the smoke machine. So I have one, (laughs) 
I'm playing an iPod with my left hand. I'm behind him and behind behind the stage and behind the curtain to his lower right rear. And then I had one hand ready to fade on his vocal. And the other hand was on a smoke machine. And then I was doing the smoke machine. And you were juggling at the same time, right? Multitasking. Yeah. And, eating, and, and eating a taco. I'll let you know which part of my body was feeding myself a taco. Yeah. But the other, the, the studio engineer, John Gass, who's a great studio engineer, he mixed the piano and a microphone gala show and a lot of people saw him mixing it they went in on a tour and watched and listened to john mixing it in studio a so i i multi-tracked it on my drive immediately after the show prince said after show one can you go in there and dump it in uh the machine he said can you dump it in the machine that we can start mixing it and i said sure so right after show one it, i faded out music the lights went up i beelined it with john to studio a went in there dumped it into the digital audio workstation we'll say and then and john got right to work you know, I did a bunch of microphones that we hung overhead. Uh, it was Prince's piano, his voice, and his foot. I mic'd his foot so that when he was stomping to the beat. Oh, uh, yeah. Nice. So I kind of surreptitiously put a foot mic down there. And I didn't put it in the PA, but I put it in the, I'm sure they used it in the recording. And that's how I did it in uh, Australia as well. I tracked the foot in Australia because well, I knew yeah. we'd be on hard show. Uh, we wouldn't have carpeting there, so it would be a better effect. Mm, so, yeah. so, yeah, I mean, we definitely, it, I don't know why he used that walk-in playlist but he did give me that disc that said walk-in music and the rest mm -hmm. is sort of history and uh, yeah, i hope well, they actually i hope they now that i think about it i sorry to interrupt you i hope they clear using yeah, that yeah. song here's my oh, idea that's, that's okay. what i was, yeah. here's, <laughs> well, I was now, thinking it <laughs> yeah after this one you can put dash scotty baldwin for this, for this. <laughs> <laughs> i hope they play track 23 of memories of you know that memories play that track which was track 23 on his playlist and I hope they fade it out at the same point and then you hear, you know, and you have Prince come out. Because that would be, they probably won't do that. And they legal won't want to clear it. They don't want to pay money and da, da, da. But yeah. that, having that song end up, that was of particular importance to Prince to have that song be the last song you heard before he played. Mm. Yeah. And and we may That's never know why, but, but, but yeah, that would be ideal because I remember at the Sydney Opera House just sitting there and it was a little bit different. <laughs> we didn't hear the entire CD as walking music. All we heard well, first we saw the lights go down and then we just heard, well, actually, no, the lights were still technically on and that that confluence piece came across the PA. Yes. And then, you know, um, the rest is history, as they say. But that was a, it was super eerie. It, I mean, the music is is very evocative and emotive. Uh, so, yes. yeah, I agree. That, that needs to be on any piano and mic release to really understand the, the context, you know, that it, it was bookended by that. And then, you know, at the end of the show, basically a, a rapture, a rapturous the, applause from mm, the audience. That's a way of the way of the way of proposing it is this. The show didn't start when he walked on stage. The show started yeah. when that Memories exactly. of the yeah. song started. And that's that was the doors opened. He walked out. That was part of the show. So that was in yeah, essence yeah. a it built the <laughs> tension. Yeah, that's right. For him to and come it, out. it yeah. had the musical tension in that piece. If people know that yes. piece, and that's uh, that's what he wanted. So the show started at that song. That's a really good point. And then it ended. He ended early in the Australia run. He ended with Purple Rain. I don't think he ever. I'm not sure if he ever planned. I don't. I'd have to look back at the set list, or I don't know. People keep set lists of they know what the set lists were. I don't. But not sure if he planned Purple Rain as the end song. But um. Once he ended with it the first time, after that, I used a walkout of Purple Rain that I had made from the record. Yep. Oh, yeah, yeah. All the string outro and stuff. Right. I yeah, just made a loop right. of that 
from the record. You were mixing those shows live, right? So you're standing yep. at the soundboard and you're hearing him, you know, maybe not as autobiographical, but certainly emotionally very intense. It was for us as an audience, uh, hearing a lot of that material. For example, you know, songs that he would pull out that are emotional by nature, something like the latter, you know, really spine tingling moment, yes. hearing him strain his vocal and push his vocal and really be probably as naked in inverted commas as he, has, as he ever has been in front of an audience. How was it yes. like for you to hear that? Because see, you've heard him through the gold experience era. You've heard One Night Alone. You've, yeah. you've done all this sort of stuff. And then all of a sudden, it's just one guy, piano and voice, and you're there with, within the context of and the narrative of having seen so many different sides of him, but he finishes his career in such a unique way, I guess. What was it like for you hearing that? His, his song choice, all the song choices he was making and the way he split up, um, I, I didn't see a, uh, an exact pattern, but I could tell that they were in a, I don't want to say a spiritual nature, but do you know what I mean? He was, the choices were, they were in a nature of um, deep meaning. They were rooted mm -hmm. and constituted in deep meaning. And um, uh, the thing I particularly noticed about those performances was that he was in great form as a pianist. And I wouldn't say as a keyboard player because he was playing a real piano with real weight. And I know it got to him. It, it of course got to him because that's a, it's a brand new Yamaha piano. Mm. It had a mm. lot of, it had a hard action. I remember having the action. I thought, oh man, this is going to be, it was, it was actually a medium action, but you know, when, when you're used to a keyboard, yeah, um, and, even and he was teeth. thumping it hard, <laughs> and he was, and so he he was really working it, and that that has a cumulative effect. If you speak to any keyboard uh, pianist, there's a cumulative effect, and a lot of times, a list a uh, uh, big time classical pianists they they don't rehearse by playing, they rehearse by reading music, and just and they can mm -hmm. tap out on a on a table the the muscle memory of what they're playing, and because there's a lot of risk of injury. So they um, only yeah. play a lot of times when necessary, and they they're very stringent about their practice. And and he was playing a lot. It was um, I'm sure it was hard on his hands. I I never I didn't know. I know he was he would wring his he would shake his hands out a lot and and during the day. And and I, I'm sure that was just a, a motion of warming up. But um, the other thing I noticed was he was in he was always in good voice, but he was in particularly immaculate control of his voice on the piano. I think it, uh, a tour because I think he could hear himself. Number one. I think he could hear himself well mm, and yeah. there was space and he wasn't fighting any other instruments and he wasn't having to turn his voice or, or make any sort of change in his voice just to match, to get by instruments that were, you know, plugging up his, you know, hearing. He, he really had a lot of space and he controlled all the space himself with his fingers and his voice. And he, um, I could do a whole podcast on, on him as a vocalist <laughs> and how I saw that change over the years from 90 to 2016. And he was in, such good shape in 2016 and i've said it before famously and i mean it i've i never heard a flat note in 26 years i never heard a sharp note anything he did was on uh, intentional on yeah. and on, on purpose it was intentional and he had this cool tilt that he could do to his voice that um i could talk about it in a more tech technical way but there's no need it's he could he could turn on this dirty i called it his dirty he had a dirty a sound that he could get this go back in his um the back of his throat and get this um, thing that you can do with your larynx. And he could tilt that larynx and get this dirty sound. And it sounds gravelly. He can mm -hmm. do that. And he can make that change from the dirt to the clean. And then to do these piercing, perfectly uh, formed falsettos that were always mm -hmm. started right on the note. And um, he, he was, his vibrato was in great shape. He was just in perfect form. It, it was the people at, at Paisley park and 
uh, consequently in Australia and in Auckland. I don't know about, I imagine it was the same way in Perth. Um, he was in an arena. He didn't have his regular sound guy. I made sure they sent two or three sound guys there uh, so he could have his choice. Mm. So I, I left and I still wanted to help. So I left my iPod and I left uh, uh, everything there and um, so that it wouldn't hurt the show any. Um, and um, I, I don't know how the shows were back at Oracle in, in you know, the, sh- the shows that he did winding up in the U.S. doing those shows, but he was in great shape in Australia, just uh, especially for having flown and especially for having maybe some of the issues with, with which uh, helped end his life. Um, I'm sure that was very difficult, but he always made everything easy. He was just a master at, at, of control, especially in his voice. And I, I was uh, the thing that I kept thinking about when I was back there, you know, behind the stage. And I didn't even have a cue monitor. I wanted to hear it the way the crowd was hearing it. So I didn't even have a cue wedge there. Um, he would do everything with me with hand signals. His, he would drop his right hand and give me a signal. And I was good at picking up, you know, kind of pitcher mm-hmm. catcher things and, and those signals. But he um, he was in great shape. He was in fighting shape there. So I appreciate, I used to appreciate that when I'd be sitting at the desk at how he was pulling all of this out of him. Yeah. Well, I mean, as, as an audience member, he was moving around like a prize fighter during some bits as well. Yes. So I think he yeah. was, he was feeding off the crowd as much as anything else. And I think he knew he was in, you know, as they say, the kids in rare form tonight. Right. So, um, he definitely, he definitely brought something to those piano and mic shows. And in particular for us, the, the Australian ones, but I guess just closing the loop on that Australian tour, and you touched on this already, but those synth parts or the synth arrangements that were added to the shows in addition to him playing the grand piano, uh, yes. for example, in the Sydney Opera House, was that pre-programmed? Was he actually playing those parts? Because, you know, his voice, yes, it was clear and it was raw and constantly evolving and changing, but those synths added something as well. You know, he didn't quite have a, a symphony orchestra with him, but they did add color you know, to it. Yeah. Yeah. They added um, color and it was a subtle replacement for, I guess, a full string section, but I don't know if that was in his mind. I know what it was. And he was playing it live there. I know people, there was conjecture as to whether that was added later or that it was something to do with the iPad up above or whatever. Mm. It wasn't both his motif, uh, his personal motif, a keyboard and that Yamaha, a silent piano that I chose for him. Those have, uh, they had multiple patches. They can sound like any instrument. You can disengage the hammers from hitting the strings and actually making the grand piano sound, which there was none on stage in front of him. That was shut off. All his piano sound was coming through the wedges I had for him, the monitors below him. But also he could change, as I said, from the straight piano patch to the one with the synth bed. And the reason he would do that from a orchestration point of view is you can't sustain notes on a piano for very long. They're going to ring. The, the mm. hammer is going to hit the string and they're going to ring for how, however long they're going to ring. And without having to roll your fingers and go do, 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 and do it that way. When he went to the string patch, the piano and strings patch, what that did was that that was a bed. That was a musical bed, almost an orchestration bed that he could sustain with the use of the, the sustain pedal on the piano. And it would hold mm. underneath him. He could go to another chord and then go to the next chord. Oh, release. wow. Okay. So all it was was a, it was a musical bed underneath which he could make changes in the piano sound. So it was in his mind, it's really interesting. And somebody's going to study this someday. But on that Paisley Park show on the shows in Australia and in uh, New Zealand, he, why he chose to sustain with the piano and, and grand, uh, excuse me, the piano and strings patch, why he chose the strings patch for certain songs. I think it's, it, it was a simple matter. Again, with Prince, it was the, 
Occam's razor, you know, the, the principle that this the simplest explanation is the best, right? So with Prince, he was just trying to add a bed of a chord to the next chord change. And he made some really cool key change things that I know, knowing music that I knew he was doing. And it's funny for a guy who didn't read music, it's a monumental task to get from one key to another with mm. no change in between. And he mm. did it all interstitially through going through these, through these progressions. And he didn't know theory. I mean, people don't say he knew theory, but I we had discussions about theory and he didn't know theory. And he, he asked me, do you still, do you read? And I said, no, I used to when I played in, in school. And um, uh, because he, we had this discussion about perfect pitch and I said, I didn't have it. He said, no, I said, do you? And he said, no. And he said, do you read? And I said, yeah, I used to know, but I forgot and I haven't been keeping up on it and i said what about you and he said no and i said well it's not too late to learn man this is i think i think this was in this was in 04 this was in preparation for musicology i said well it's not too late to learn he said no if i learned how to read now it would change the way i write and i influenced yeah. many people with the way i write now so that yeah, i mean you probably heard me say that before but that was a really clean clear way of thinking about it that he was already thinking of his effect on other people and how it would be looked at as as how he written how he writes because oftentimes when you learn theory and you learn how to play, and there was this kid recently who somebody introduced me to this kid and said, watch his YouTube videos. He's incredible. And uh, I don't want to say his name. I, I just recalled it, but I don't want to say it. So you watch this kid and he talks about theory and he walked to, and he could plays these really cool, intricate pieces. Prince would not have been turned on by this guy because he, what's missing is a feel and a soul and something mm -hmm. that you can't get off a page and something that you can't write down. It's a, it's something that moves the spirit. And Prince had that thing. He didn't need to have perfect picture read or sight read. He just, as evidenced by, by all the piano shows, he could move from difficult one key to another. Mm. You know, I'm going to move. We've from talked about that before, just how we can go. Like he's finishing off one song and he's like, okay, I'm here and I've got to get over here. And just, he'd get there somehow. Yeah. Transition. Just, yeah. 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 And he would, he, he just knew how to wait it out and walk up chromatically. You know, and he, he just knew how to do that. And he took his time and mm -hmm. he wanted the audience to enjoy the, the, the process of getting there. And that's what I really appreciate is about, to me, it's a, I know the album initially when it was released, Love Sexy was one track, right? Yeah. Yes. I hope when they release the piano show, it's two tracks. The first one is the memories of a geisha. It fades out. And, uh, and then, and then, <laughs> and then it's the show. Is the entire show. Because to just go up and say, well, I'm just going to go up to uh, something uh, in the water does not compute. You're not being told the way he got there. Mm, and the journey mm, of that show was as, as important as anything. So it should be yeah. something that's experienced by it's pressing a whole one button. and performance back. piece, yeah. And they can just and, list me when they, when they do the track uh, sheet for the Paisley Park show. Yeah, thanks to Scotty. First, yeah, they just, just throw me under the producer. He said I was a producer anyway. You're, you're a producer. There you go. You're the, done. You're, the, or you're, the producer. you're the producer. I said, what do you want to do here? Well, you're the producer. And I said, oh. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, they need to remember that when they uh, You'll be in the production for sure. Yeah. Well, look, yeah. if that Paisley Park show comes out in a visual form, whether it's on DVD or Blu-ray or digitally or whatever, that would be fantastic. What yeah. else would be fantastic is maybe a complete audio show, a different concept from maybe somewhere else in the tour. Obviously, we're going to say Sydney Opera House. Do you have a particular <laughs> show? And, and, and if you say Sydney Opera House, we'll very gladly accept that well, as, I don't a, know. State as a, valid, good as a valid response. <laughs> or state, Sydney State Theatre, any of those two will do fine. Yeah, the State Theater has a particular amusement for me because I complained about something and it got back to him and then he got it back to me through someone who was there and he said, tell Scotty to put his big boy pants on. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, we got to hear that so, story. 
And so I just said, oh, I just shook my head in disgust and said, all right, I'll just see him when he's here. And then he came in <laughs> and then we went through the sound check and everything was fine. Of course, he didn't say anything about that, about what was going on, but there was a lot of grinding. He was grinding a lot. And I think it was, again, I tend to consider myself, you have to be a part of a psychologist to, to really get into the mind of someone, not only to stay a step ahead, but also to really imbibe the artistic vision that an artist wants to make. So as I've said before, if Simon LeBond says to me, which he did in 2003, my voice sounds too green. I want it to sound sky blue. Not only do I not have to interpret that, and then I have to know how to make the moves on a desk to make it sound like that, but I have mm. to know why his voice sounded green and what he, why he wanted it to sound sky blue. So I was always there for Prince in that way. I always knew, and he made, he let me, you know, back, especially in the drum days, I had a lot of different hats I wore, not just drum tech. And I was respected back then. And I think I had a lot of you know, credibility back then just because he relied on a few of us, uh, Morris included, Kirk included, to do multiple things and do them at a high level. And um, and I, I don't know what show particularly I would choose. Um, they all sort of, they all, it was a lot of jet lag and a lot of pressure. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so they all sort of turned into one performance. Yeah. I, um, but they were all, I'll say this, they were all equally good. Yeah, anyone who came didn't like, oh yeah, but I, w- I was there for state theater and this wasn't as good here i don't think it was like that you got a different experience everywhere yeah yeah, um, yeah it was right. just a completely I, different experience <clears throat> I, i'm wondering when you guys were there like in a theater so you know one night you're playing the sydney opera house it's a concert hall the next day you're playing sydney theater which is this old grand old school theater that creates a different culture and a vibe right i don't know how yes. how many conversations if any that you had around you know, this is a different venue. Um, the sounds bouncing off the walls differently in this in this state theater here. We're going to do something um, mildly different today, or not? Mm. But yeah, actually, most of the trouble I had uh, over there was not of my own doing. It was um, it wasn't, and it wasn't the venues. I I've never really mixed a venue that that was like monumentally hard to difficult to mix. I think it it has to do with preparation for execution. I laugh when mm-hmm. I hear engineers fly into the uh, stadium here in Minneapolis. The the American football, you know, Minnesota Vikings play and, and, uh, they say, Oh, you know, you got to fly the engineer and the production manager and the tour manager in. they have to a month before the tour and they have to look at the place and listen to it and get a test <laughs> in there. I just laugh because that to me, that was, that's so unprince Like you just go in and you take over the room and it's your room and make you, it happen. You make <laughs> it happen. And, um, I think there's a softness that has hit the industry and, um, people are less bold and they're less willing to take chances and, we always won. I always felt like I won with Prince having my back, you know, and, and supporting me. And the, the worst times I felt with him are when I didn't feel supported by him. And the best times are when uh, either Trevor or Zachary or some, one of the security guys would come and just look at me and say, hey, he, come on, you know, at the end of a show, come on, come with me. He wants to talk to you. And I, I always knew when it was good and it, it would be <laughs> elation, you know, and he would still be riding the high because he lived for a live performance. That was it to him. You know, the recordings are are really something. And um, he was one artist that didn't get mired in production, a poor production value. He did it really fast and he did it probably under time and under budget and he made it happen. And he was prodigious in his output and voluminous in the amount of music he put out. And he never really, other than a couple albums I can think of, he never really suffered a production era where he got locked into. I was listening to a Whitney Houston song, playing it for my daughters the other day. And I went, oh man, this is just straight up early eighties. You know, yeah. the drum machine and <laughs> and Prince because he really owned the Lynn drum machine sound, and he um, he just was kind of a timeless performer, and we're we're lucky to have been um, 
around to experience him. And I, I, I feel for the people that really enjoy him, but never saw him live. It was really a treat to see him live. And you, you guys obviously had, um, were, yeah. were part of that and to be in the room and be surrounded by that. And so I, I don't, the stuff that wasn't of my making in those venues was the sound from the rear. He wanted sound to come from the rear. So he had speakers on every level firing back toward the stage. And to me, that's a death sentence for sound. You never want to... Mm. I tried to teach him that at Paisley Park. I put him in the center of the room and he, we played it. And I said, look, and he said, see, sounds good here. Sounds great. I said, yeah, come over here. We walked about three meters to the right. And he said, <laughs> and he, he pointed to the, and he said, well, now, now it sounds like it's coming from up there. And I said, exactly. It sounds good. One place in the room and that's in the center. But you know, me, I have to be looking at the, the whole room. The, yeah. I have to mix it. Yeah. So, so some of that gave me headaches and, um, uh, it would have been weird to be up in the crowd in the state theater somewhere and Prince is loud and he's behind you and you're looking at the stage <laughs> and the sounds coming from behind you. It just doesn't register. Yeah. He didn't, he seriously, he just didn't understand that. And we fought about mm. it, but, um, ultimately he made the decisions he had to make and I had to make them for the, for the betterment of the sound for the crowd. And usually that was always on the same page. He didn't ever really ride me into the boards about that stuff. So I, I would kind of, uh, win him over with good sound and he would leave a sound. The state theater, theater, I can say I was literally the back row for that second state theater show. Okay. That was the only ticket I got. And the sound, I thought it sounded better than both of the opera house shows. Yes. Yeah. Again, uh, again, the state theater is a little bit a place where I had a little more horsepower to throw at people instead Mm. of being really defensive and having pushing down the, the pedal and then having it come back to him. And on stage. Yeah. So again, the, the Sydney Opera House was meant to disperse sound, acoustic sound from mm, uh, human yes. voice and instruments. And so there's a really fine line. You have to really know your stuff. That window is a lot smaller to try and land there. But I, I always, mm. I, I always trusted my instinct, and and I knew my intention was always very humble and just trying to get the best sound of people who pay a lot of money. You know, and ultimately it was, there was a, a question of, of questions of money as well and, and arguments about money. And, um, and, uh, I think it was probably Auckland or the city before Auckland where he said, he just turned and said, what's, what's wrong? What, you know, what's, what's, what's the problem? And I said, well, I'm just not having any fun out here. And, um, mm. he said, um, something I said, well, if I were grossing 1.6 million a night, um, <laughs> I'd be a lot happier. <laughs> I, no, I said, uh, he's, oh, I know what he said. He said, uh, he said, what's the matter? We not paying you enough? And I said, well, I know if I were grossing 1.6 million a night, I'd break my longtime sound guy off 25 grand a show. And he said, <laughs> and he said, 50 grand a night for sound. And I said, absolutely. And he just laughed. But as I said, I know it made him think because he didn't want to play the keyboard. And as soon as I said that, he just looked out in the crowd and in the empty hall and he just started playing. So I know he was thinking about it. And as far as I'm concerned, I, I deserve that and more because it was just um, the two of us. But we still did great work, no matter what. And I can say what I want and I can uh, be really honest. And sometimes honesty isn't the thing nowadays, especially <laughs> in the world. Honesty is, um, you know, it's a commodity. It's it's harder to find now. People want to put a bow on everything. They want to they control the way they're perceived and how many clicks and how many likes. And, how, and they don't want to, nobody wants to put anything on the line. And I'm not I'm not a daredevil, but I do believe in being honest. And I think it serves the memory of a great artist the best when people are really candid and the people that were close and were asked on a regular basis, are we friends? Are we friends? Are we friends? And for me to respond honestly to him and say, I I don't know, man, I, I, I said, we work together. You know, I don't know how to answer that question. There are people that would die to, to be asked by a high level artist if they're, if they're friends. But that wasn't a good position to be in, but I still through it all. I, my intention is to serve the people that want to 
hear him with the best possible sound. And I did that. And I'm very proud of that. And he should be proud too. He was a great yeah. artist, not a good one. He was a great. And um, there are very few great ones. I can't, mediocrity has risen to new heights. Now we look at <laughs> mediocrity. We look at, yeah. and I could name three artists, like on the, the biggest ones. And I could just say, so that's the best he got. Yeah, like that, That's it. <laughs> Since when did mediocre yeah. become the new level of great? Yeah. And yeah. When's mediocre turned great? So he, he was somebody who pushed boundaries in his career, in his life, how he perceived himself, how he wanted to be perceived. Um, he challenged you as a listener and as a close follower yeah. to be dedicated to him. And he was dedicated to you as evidenced by his, not always successful, but his NPG music club and all these things that he was doing to try and make things better and make and challenge you as a listener. And as uh, somebody who followed his career, most people would just want to lock him in a room with a Lynn and a, as I said, with a Lynn <laughs> yeah. and, a, and an Oberheim, but it's, he wanted to challenge you and he did. And we're all better for that. And I appreciate him very much. And, and, um, I miss him, you know, I miss him. It's not often mm. that I, that I mean, I miss him now. I haven't talked about him for a couple hours. I don't think about him every day like I used to, but, uh, but I do miss him. And, um, I think that the world is worse off without him, but it was his, it was his time and it was his oh, art. Definitely. If it gives people solace to know that, that, um, he went out doing in the way that he came in which was solo and by himself and being responsible for it himself. There were very few of us there at the end that were really there to help, um, seal that up. But I'm really proud to have been a, a responsible part of that. Oh yeah. Great. Is there anything you've heard Prince work on that, you know, would be in the vault that you'd like to see released? Oh man. Oh yeah. Uh, no, I, I, my initial, my gut thought and my momentary thought, the blink moment would be that he released exactly what he wanted to release. We did have yeah. a couple of discussions on what he, what he released and what he didn't in 2012. I remember a particular discussion up in the conference room where he actually gestured toward the vault. He said, what I gave Warner brothers for purple rain wasn't even the best stuff on Purple Rain, all that yeah. stuff's still down there. And he pointed down there. And that, um, I don't necessarily believe that. I think, I believe he believed it, or I believe that he wanted to believe it. But um, if you're coming out and you're a new artist and you have a movie, you're going to give him the best stuff. Mm. Yeah, and yeah. and um, I'm glad that, uh, what was the song? It's like Moonbeam Levels was replaced by Beautiful Ones. Is that right? Or, or something like that? Oh, it's something like that, yeah. Yeah, but Beautiful Ones replaced a song. And thank God, because Beautiful Ones still is... If I had to pick one song that I think it wouldn't be When Doves Cry, a lot of people would choose that. Everyone has their choice. But to to go from this loving guy in a whisper and falsetto to by the end of the song, talking about making a choice mm. and screaming and having the controlled anger and screaming that he did in that song, that is a song worth listening to over and over and over. Oh, yeah. and, it was a, and it was a joy to program that loop for the revolution you know, Bobby said, Hey, you know, take that one, you know, let me hear what you got. And, you know, I would, everything I would help Bobby, we work together in creating these loops to make them as authentic as possible. And they haven't, the revolution's never played that live with me mixing them. Oh. So, um, because it would always, it would have to be a guest singer. And, um, I didn't do the September shows of 2016. So, uh, but I have the loop programmed and it's, you know, start to finish it's, it's dead on. And even just programming that loop, I understood what a great song that is. I still remember in on that 2012 Australian tour where and he played the beautiful ones and it just it just blows your head off like to yeah. hear it live it's just something else yeah because you start as this 
understanding lover and you end up telling them they have to make a choice and it's really intense yeah and and the way the vocal develops through that song but you notice the oh, drum yeah. beat stays the drum beat is almost the same mm. having programmed it now I, I tell you it almost with the exception of a dropout of a couple of snare parts it's a basically the same from beginning to end on the fade out and that's what's cool is that the drum beat stayed the same but his intensity vocally was through the roof it just was the perfect execution. And I'll bet you anything, it was probably one or two takes. Oh, yeah. I, I, I consider myself very much not a scholar of Prince music. Um, if I sat down with Questlove or something and, and talked about his, or any any deep Prince fan, I would be run over in minutes. because I, I But I can tell you about narrative arc and the effect emotionally mm. and the emotive content and the quality of Prince. And it's not because I knew him, it's because I understood him. And I think that's what is really important is that the people that like the revolution who understood him, um, they're around and he wants people that are around that, that well, can really, the, yeah. um, that can emulate and imbibe that, that artistic vision. Having been there since basically from 1990 through to 2016, like you said before, that's quite the evolution of an artist to witness firsthand through all those albums and through the bands and the tours. I mean, you out of anyone probably has one of the most unique, you know, points of view on seeing it from the angle that you saw it. I mean, I don't really have a question. I mean, that's it, just, it, it, yeah. it's true. It's true. And I don't, and I didn't really uh, realize it until much after he died that I covered this period of time that, that were so many different formations of bands and members yeah. of the NPG and then uh, third eye girl. And uh, I remember Prince introducing, wanted me to meet the three ladies and having me go out for coffee with them. He just brought us, out for coffee. He said, you talk to him, you know what to say to him. And then dump me off at the, at the, at the, at the coffee there you go. shop. And he said, I'll just be out here waiting. And I went in and talked to Ida, Hannah and Donna as they were just starting with them. And I kind of just made the conversation turn a certain way and say, what an opportunity. And, you know, you got to be on your toes and you have to over-prepare and then prepare so much that you don't even know that you're super well-oiled. It's much the same way the revolution mm. did. You know, he took a raw band in the revolution, very different, as Wendy said, very different types of players, gay, straight, multiracial, multi-belief systems. There's all sorts of stuff. And he, you know, this uh, seemingly ragtag group of musicians and he made them into the most fierce band. That band would still eat up any band nowadays. All you have to do is- Revolution, like I said, yeah. Is, yeah, revolution. Just, just, and you wouldn't think so. You go, what? Oh, oh, what? Them? Oh, no. But you can't say them. You can't say that when you watch them. You watch any yeah. show. I mean, you can watch the show now. And the the it's all in the ghost notes. It's all in the the understanding yeah. of the material. And you can watch yeah. anything from 84, 85. And just, you just, it's on, it's fire. It's, it's, it's fire. It's I'm undeniable. I'm just really hoping that they get, somehow to they Australia. get down to yeah. Australia and we'll be able to see it. Because I've never seen them. I've never oh, seen yeah. the Revolution play. So if they can somehow get down here. Let's let's make that happen. <laughs> yeah, you would you'd you'd love it. It's a great show, and they are uh, like me. They are made of that. That's where they came from. That's where they're made. Wendy mm. talks so eloquently. Mark, they talk really eloquently about the experience and what it is. And when you have those five individuals, they're really special. And especially adding Stokely on on vocals, he doesn't try and be mm. Prince. He doesn't try and sing like Prince. He's somebody that Prince loved and admired and respected and worked with. And so, and they are in that seat and. Um, it's it's great. I'm I'm really happy for those guys. I'm proud of them. I don't know if I'm in a position really necessarily to say I'm proud of you guys, but I'm but I'm proud of the revolution. For oh yeah, you done. can. And they, everything they're doing is reverential. You know, it's not yeah. to grab up. There's a lot of buck grabbing, I'm sure, going on in that world. But um, they or I I can hazard that guess. And they're not about that. They're really um 
Uh, if anything, they've yeah, probably gone it's into for their the own music, pockets. It's, for that. it's for Prince, yeah. 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 Uh, well, you, uh, you use the words reverential and uh, speaking eloquently, and I'm going to throw those right back at you because you've done both of those things and then some talking about, you know, your experiences working with Prince. It's been an absolute treat hearing your insights and learning a little bit more about the, the, the magic and the craft and and also the grit and the determination and, and really everything. It's, it's all that in a bag of chips when you peer behind the curtain <laughs> to learn about what really goes into what the audience ends up seeing. And, you know, we only see the finished product, but it's a whole other world when you really mm. stop and think about the the many disparate elements that need to come together to create something that is worth seeing. And in Prince's case, and in the case of, you know, uh, not only Prince, but all the other people that were involved in bringing that to the masses, whether it was on record or, or live, it's just remarkable to think about. So thank you, Scotty, for giving us your time and um, more importantly, you know, your, your thoughts insights. yeah, yeah you. and your insights and sharing them with us and with the audience as well. So we, uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, it's my pleasure, my absolute uh, pleasure. And I appreciate you guys on what you're doing to, as I say, add to the canon of work because the, the how Prince affected fans is part of his work. It's not just the recorded material um, and how he, yeah. how he wanted desperately to change the industry, you know, itself. And, and all those things are noble. And um, I've always tried to do the best for, for him and, and in his uh, spirit and honor. And every, now that I'm mixing in China uh, every week, I, I think about him all the time. I think about how he would, um, what he would say, or if he walked up, you know, and he would say, mm. turn up, turn up the snare. Yeah. I, I, I can think of those things and, and kind of make here. those moves based, yeah, based on it. So he's still there. He's still there on all of us. And I appreciate you guys being a responsible part of that as well. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you so I always much. thought it was a bit weird that he liked a podcast because we didn't say everything was great. You know, if, if we didn't like a song, we're like, I don't like this song. I don't like the bass or whatever it was. I always thought it was weird that he somehow took criticism from us, but dismissed it from other people. I always he, thought that was a bit strange. I, I think if it, he knew that having a podcast, you had to be a super fan and he put his fans um, above all else. He didn't think much of critics. We all know that mm. because critic is the fashion of the day. And what a critic writes is, is now uh, on on a newspaper in a blog, and it's to sell uh, a paper. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's gone the next day in in the gutters of the streets, <laughs> blowing around and being used as a, a you know in a birdcage, you know, in the bottom <laughs> of a birdcage. But but when um, man, I'm really dating myself now. But um, but but, uh, but what fans thought he listened to, and he was care careful, careful. He was careful of that and concerned with it, and he uh, fans meant everything to him. He was wow. one that ne- he didn't he didn't allow. You know, to my knowledge and my recollection, he didn't allow his sensibilities to be bent too much creatively on what the fans were doing, but he always listened and as a response. And in 2004, he changed the set list and added songs and changed songs because of what fans were asking for, what they were asking. They were asking for changes and he listened. So I know he listened and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm happy to, I'm happy to say that you guys, uh, I let you know that you were a part of um, that and he listened to you and he heard all your voices and he heard your opinions and that's important. And it's important to be, to, to be known. That, that he was um, listening. I just, uh, player just said to me yesterday something he reminded me of, and it's like it was October 2002 where he bought those few guitars in Japan. I'm guessing you were there then. Yes. And um, he had the whammy bar put on, and I hammered him about it. Like every show I would bring up the whammy bar and how I didn't like it, and 
pretty much after we did that for a while, the, the whammy bar pretty much disappeared, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we, we'll the player just reminded me of that yesterday. He's like, have you ever thought about that? Like we hammered the whammy bar for like at least six months and then it's pretty much went away yeah. not long yeah. after that. It was funny. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's kind of cool thinking that you might've been a, a part of a decision that he made, you know, and, <laughs> and not, not, not unlike the way that if somebody's walking into a red carpet event and you just yell out there hey, and then they turn and look at you and point, you, yeah, you know, fans go, ah, <laughs> it's just, and what that is, is that just an exclamation. It, it makes someone turn and look at them and then you feel like you influence them, mm. right? That's, that's why we're so under the thumb of, of advertisers and influencers now is because mm. you just want to feel like you were part of what made that person do something. And in Prince's case, he had a particularly, you know, um, his sensibilities who were very particular. So to know that that could have had an effect is very powerful yeah. because he's a, he was a powerful person and had a powerful artistic effect on the world and will be remembered as such. Well, thank you very well, much. There's, there's no, been no better way to end than that. <laughs> and we, I appreciate we'll, you guys we'll, very much. I look forward to it anytime. Yeah, anytime for sure. Part part two. In the want. future, well, yeah, part two. That's right. I was going to say, we're, we're about, we've reached the halfway point, so if you want to have a coffee and a toilet break. No, it's, it's really, it's been brilliant. It's a, uh, yeah, yeah, today was a real treat. Well, thank you very much, guys. I appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. And um, all, all the best. Yeah. All the best. with. Ch you'll be in China soon, probably. So all the best with uh, all those projects as well. Thank you very and, much. Um, oh, we'll, yeah. We'll Scotty's out there point. playing um, playing 12 Zodiacs. It's a good song. That's right. That's right. Good. <laughs> I like that song. <laughs> yeah, awesome. You've been listening to another classic Peach and Black podcast. Catch all our episodes at podbean.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Mixcloud, and all good podcast directories. Search for Peach and Black Podcast. You can continue the Peach and Black experience online. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. The Peach and Black Podcast is written and produced by Rob S., Player, Toejam, and Captain. Original theme music by Toejam. Audio production and additional audio editing by Captain at Funky Temple Studios. Episode artwork by Reverend. Share our podcast with your friends and Prince fans. If you love our show, please write a review on Apple Podcasts. You can contact the Peach and Black Podcast by email at peachandblackpodcastofficial at gmail.com. 